T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. I gave you permission. Uh, okay. You're a co-host, so you should be able to tape. Yep, I got it. Oh. Don, do you want to tape it as well? You can have permission, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but could you uh, download it to my Facebook afterwards? So, yeah. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. What'd you think of my promo? It was half Wonderful. Grant and half me. <laughs> Absolutely. No, 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 no. It was great. Great. I'm glad you were able to do that. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's crunch time. But Grant and I have this theory that it's like, it has to go up within 24 hours. Otherwise people forget and they don't pay attention to it for well, very long. So <laughs> throughout history, some of the greatest accomplishments have been on the spur of the moment. Look at a rocket launch. You know, you don't even know till that morning if it's gonna, it's a go or not. So everything comes into place. Okay. Yeah, see, it's not allowing me to go to to change the address for the YouTube. It's still on that other YouTube one. Not me. Hang on. Not me. Let me see. Well, if it does that, the Facebook option might be the way to go. Okay, hang on. It's giving me another chance here. Email or phone. My head's cut off. There we go. Maybe my head got bigger. Just got to lean back. <laughs> Stand up or sit up tall. Sit up I know. Well, I always move because I have three devices around me. So it's kind of that thing. You know, we're all interactive these days. I'm going to try to read along with the comments and see if people ask questions. So... I tend well, to get enthralled in your answers, so I lose the comments. <laughs> yeah, we got this problem again. We need Desta. Shoot. We'll call her. You got eight minutes. <laughs> Hang on. Let me see. Is that a hard uh, seven o'clock or five o'clock? <laughs> no, no, no. It can we do whatever, but All I don't right. want to have you sit here and wait. Our fans will start messaging. They'll be like, what's wrong? Is it going up? <laughs> They're used to it, so. Yeah, another conspiracy, yeah. I, I will bet Melinda Leslie will be the first person to message me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not up, what's going on? <laughs> you know, I, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. She's good, she's a great Oh, sport. absolutely, yeah, <laughs> such a good heart. She also gave me a paragraph full of questions that I have to ask you during the course of this interview. So <laughs> she's like, UFO I'm related? sure he'll answer them on his own, but. <laughs> but are they UFO related? Because she 
ask me a lot of questions. But. Right? No, they are. I hope. I'll look them up for sure. Okay. Oh, Grant got the bat signal. He's on the phone. She's not answering. It's not a good sign. Uh-oh. She really took off. Oh. Justin, give me a call if you're there. Thanks. Uh, send out the bad signal. Mm. The bad signal. Let me try her by Facebook here. I didn't. Well, I'm not logged on like that, so. You didn't send her an invite, right? Um, I did not, but I can via Facebook really quick if you want. Um, let me just get her by Facebook here. I've, I've got her. Um, Now, in my upper left-hand corner, I have a red recording light that is flashing. Yep. We're, the Zoom is still recording, but we haven't gone live to anywhere yet. So okay. this is our, this is the candid portion of our broadcast that okay. will Take the lead. exclusive. It'll be an exclusive release in 20 years. Take the late broadcast, 20 years from now, yeah. Hidden, hidden footage. <laughs> Locked away in a time capsule all that time. In Grant's archive. I listened to you a couple times on Jimmy's show on Fade to Black. Was that last week that you were on? It was just, nice. just, just the other night again. Jimmy always calls me up at the last minute. Yeah. Or, or Clyde, Clyde Lewis does too, his, his producer, Ron, Ron Patton. Don, Clyde wants Ron tonight to comment about something. It's like, okay. So. <laughs> it must be a radio show host thing because, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, Heineck used to go through the same thing all the time. WGN in Chicago uh, would call him up a half hour and say, we're going to send a cab up. Can you be ready to go live, you know, in an hour? Yeah, guest is not around. Shit. Let me see what happens if I go to Facebook. Um, this is why you need a producer. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess we can go on Facebook. Let's see what happens with Facebook. Okay, this is the right Facebook account. Okay, sir, we can go Facebook if you want, Nicole. And in Facebook, you could always go to YouTube afterwards. Yes, and or I was even gonna say the one you have access to, is there a way, you know, I mean, before we get into the discussion, if you can just share it to your other, to your other YouTube, like, is that possible to share the live feed? No, well, okay. I wouldn't know how to do it. That's the thing, I've, I've, I've delegated all this, so I'm, Ignorant if, here. If we go live to Facebook, just give me. We're about me to go a... live. Get ready. Five, four, three, two, one. Well, just give me a few minutes and let's just talk casually and then I'll share right. it across a bunch right. of Facebook okay. groups and then we'll have our audience. Okay, we're now live on Facebook. So uh, you're, you're ready to go, Nicole. 
Hello, everybody. <laughs> good afternoon, good evening, good night. <laughs> good night. <yeah. laughs> Our guest this evening is Don Schmidt. <laughs> Grant, I'll let you give an introduction. Let's find us on Facebook. Yeah. Okay, I've known Don for quite a few years. He's one of the old timers. He's sold, what, 50 million books or whatever. <laughs> uh, he, he'll tell us exactly. I mean, he had that top selling book. Uh, he's mostly famous for Roswell. We're going to try to get some other questions in tonight. And um, my assistant, Nicole Sackage, is here from Illinois. I think Don is in uh, Wisconsin. Don was with the Center for UFO Studies, worked with J. Allen Hynek, is famous mostly for the Roswell story, uh, has done a lot of work, and is still with the um, Roswell Museum. And uh, I, I'm, he's one of the big timers of, of ufology. One of the more famous people in the field. So I'm, I'm happy to welcome Don Schmidt to uh, talk with us this evening. Good evening, Don. Well, good evening, Grant. Good evening, Nicole. It's my pleasure to be with both of you this evening. Thank you. Yeah, you, you got your you got your tie and your your stuff on. I should have if I'd known. I would have. You're always so uh, well dressed and uh, you look very professional tonight. Well, it's something that Dr. Heineck often reminded us that we're walking on eggshells as it is. So uh, at least pr always present a, a first good impression. So. Wow, there you go. So how long did you work with Heineck? Eight years. In fact, for the eight last years of his life. And so um, wonderful, wonderful uh, experiences. In, in fact, we're seriously talking about uh, doing another book on Heineck. Because from my own personal perspective, um, I, I love the fact that with Jalen Heineck, everything was on the table, that you could sit with him casually at his home. And there could either be just the two of us or, or a room full of people. And he would, you know, now, now, George, what do you think about this? And Mark, what do you think about that? And Don, tell me your feelings about this. And nothing was wrong as far as anyone's personal opinion. It was just throw it out there and let's see if we can. And, and Heineck was one who, and I'm afraid a lot of science has become, you know, scientific consensus. And I'm sorry, there's nothing scientific about that. Just because the vast majority of, of scientists might believe something doesn't necessarily ever make it close to the truth. So we still have to, you know, come up with a final resolution regarding UFOs. And that's one of the reasons that Heineck just loved to explore every possible, you know, answer with the hope that, you know, any one of them might finally suffice, might finally, you know, become, you know, that reality that we all would be in the final chase and at the finish line when the answers finally come. Were, were you in Chicago when, when the files were there? Were you were operating out of those? Because I went to see the files one time. Yes. Um, and so you were operating out of there. And, and a related question, then I'll hand it off to Nicole for a question. There's always this story that the files, what happened to the files that he had when he went to Phoenix? So you had the files at the center, but then he had some right, files. Right. There was these stories that the files had, somebody had grabbed the files or something. What happened there? What was the real story? Well, part of the, the problem when... When Alan, Dr. Heineck, and his wife Mimi moved to Scottsdale, just outside of Phoenix, yeah. it was with the enticement that there was going to be research funding, that there was some entrepreneur in California that was going to put up an actual grant to uh, create a facility. And here was Heineck 
in the, the what he knew were the, was the winter of his life. And he still wanted to make his mark. It was one of the things when Allen had established the Center for UFO Studies in the fall of 1973, he had made the mistake that he at a press conference, he had, had promised the room full of reporters that within one year, he was going to come up with a solution. He was going to come up with an, with an answer as to, you know, what was behind the phenomenon. And here it was 10 years later, and he was still struggling and still spinning his wheels as we all were trying to come up with a foundation, a basis for any one solution. And I'll never forget the last time I had dinner with Alan, he, he said to me, Don, he pounded his fist on the table and he went, Don, it's smacking more and more of nuts and bolts. And as a you know, foremost astronomer, that was his greatest difficulty in accepting the vast distances in time and space. And how is an actual spaceship travel from point A to point B, traverse all of that distance? And so here he had an opportunity with some actual funding. And it was one of the things that Alan, like a like a politician that he felt he was spending too much time soliciting money, funding as far as his continuing research. And so that was afforded him, the dangle, they dangled the carrot, but it never happened. But nonetheless, he had moved a lot of his personal files to Arizona. And as you mentioned, Grant, uh, uh, and, and quite tragically, those files are gone now. We, we lost a good portion of them. In fact, even after Alan passed away, Dr. Mark Rodiger, our, our scientific director at that time, and Mark Chesney, who had worked with NASA, who was also on our board of directors, he was an engineer at Johnson's uh, uh, Control down in Houston. They went out to Arizona to retrieve as much of the files as they still could. And we know that there's still you know, a good portion of his personal material that we'll never see again. That makes me sad. Um, do you think it's like spirited away somewhere or is it just truly gone? It's gone for good well, or do you think it'll turn up as, you know, time passes and no, no we'll I, have an archive? I think they're gone. Um, yeah. and, I, and I say that for the same reason and Grant certainly remembers APRO, the Area Phenomena mm -hmm. Research Organization. And uh, KUFOS, and I was in the office at the time that the then co-director of April, Jim Lorenzen, was becoming very concerned as to the future status of the April files. And he had actually called up J. Allen Hynek in Chicago. I was in, I was in the office and he, he pleaded with Hynek that he, they were concerned of a possible coup. That's, that uh, insiders within APRA were going to push them out, take over the organization, and they would no longer have control. And especially of all the accumulated APRA files, which was the oldest UFO organization, civilian group in the world at that time, since 1952. Right. And, and Heineck had, had agreed that we would do that, provided we could rename APRA KUFOS West. <laughs> the Center for UFO Studies West. And that's where Jim Lorenzen uh, did not concede. He backed away and said, no, no, my wife Coral will, will never agree to that. And so the very same people that are now in control of the APRO files 
are also in control of much of Hynek's personal files. And here it's been, now we're approaching 35 years and both are still in the same hands, the same people. And there's been a lot of money that has been offered for, these, for the, this material. And I think it's strictly to prevent them from public, as far as scrutiny, from accessibility, to keep the researchers out. And, and that's the tragedy, the crime of all this. That it's as though they couldn't you know, keep us from furthering as far as our own research but they can prevent us from having access to Heineck's files as well as the APRO files in that respect. Which um, there's two interesting things I find um, with this portion of conversation. I know in the past um, or not in the past, currently we talk about this era of not sharing research with each other and MUFON often comes up with this that you know their database is still private or it's been bought by certain people in the past but they if i understand my evolution of apro to a point they kind of evolved into MUFON or MUFON kind of maybe poached some of these cases and evidence like you're talking and poached is a harsh harsh word. <laughs> well, but there was quite a controversy at the time, considering that the original, the founder of MUFON, the late Walt Andrus, was originally with APRO. Yeah. And as he was siphoning away cases, it became more and more evident that he was establishing his own database. Mm -hmm. And then when he announced, and uh, I believe it was originally called the Midwest UFO organization. Now they've sort of established this um, secrecy or non-transparency with their mm -hmm. findings and their data, though. I mean, I just, do you think that is a theme that still carries over now? And how do you think we can change that? Because obviously we need more eyes on this type of research. I could not agree more. Uh, and you are correct, Nicole, that uh, there almost is as though it's a territorial. In fact, a Heineck often would rely on MUFON investigators mm -hmm. in some of the more remote areas. A case would come in and he would gladly, you know, accept that a MUFON investigator would, uh, you know, screen out the uh, information and if it warranted, you know, uh, higher level scrutiny on his part. And what was amazing though, how often we would be assigned to a case by Heineck and we would talk to some witnesses and then we would get a phone call from one of the witnesses a week later. And uh, what's this other group? They, they claim they're with some other group and we shouldn't talk to you people. We should only talk to them. And we would find out later that these were, you know, local, and I, I, I say it, you know, in jest, but, you know, MUFON wannabes, because Heineck would often refer to them as little old ladies in tennis shoes, as he would call them, because, you know, they would flash their MUFON membership, decoding ring, that type of thing. And, uh, but the idea that they would actually tell people, well, now don't talk to any other investigators. You only want to talk to us. And that just smacks of just total amateurism. And, and, and I'm sorry, uh, I have no time. I, I never did. And uh, it's a case of 
we're all in this race together. Mm -hmm. I've often stated that if any one of us succeed, we all win. What's the exactly. point of ever censoring? What's the point of ever hoarding information <laughs> that others, you know, may have additional corroboration, verification of if only you would see the light of day. So uh, again, it just smacks of almost a clubhouse mentality and uh, little old ladies in tennis shoes, I'm sorry. And no disrespect to little old ladies, believe me. Hey, yeah, they're pretty persistent sometimes. Yes, <laughs> but, yes, yes. You know, Don, I will say this is a theme we see in the community right now. It's a, it's a current theme. There is this cry for transparency, but also there is this cry for collaboration and working well with others and supporting each other in this field, despite our little rabbit holes that we like to fall into and that we dig into. And I know that's often a fine line with how um, researchers treat each other in this field. This is, we were discussing this on uh, Spaced Out Radio last week, I believe. We had an all women's panel and we discussed that often. That. <laughs> well, you can catch it. It's, the archives are free and it's all over Facebook. No, I, I mean as a guest. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Next time. Dave, I'm sure would love to have you on SOR anytime. <laughs> but this theme came up where, you know, it's like your research isn't as good as my research. It might be too woo. And this is, I would like you to comment because I was into strictly nuts and bolts for so long in my own research. And it often comes up where you pit yourself against your own experiences that you've had. And I'm an experiencer as well. Right, right. And there's, there's this theme of nuts and bolts research or woo research, and we often try our own research <laughs> to yes. figure out things for ourselves. And I know you, amongst other people that I respect in this field, Thank you. are not a UFO witness or an no. experiencer. That's correct. And that, that I enjoy because it does give you a level of skepticism, and you don't have... I, I think of it as an advantage. You don't have the advantage of saying, I know what I saw. <laughs> so how, how do you help combine both of those worlds of research? Because you are rather good at it. You don't paint yourself in a corner of, oh, I can't go there because there's nothing scientific to solidly stand on, so. Oh, but as Grant knows, I have painted myself in corners at times, but only because it was the only corner in the room. Right. And one has to, you know, go after and examine every possible explanation. And that was something that Heineken caught up in, in that if you truly, as, for example, whenever someone is, introduced as an expert on UFOs. Well, how is that possible? How can you be an expert on something that remains a mystery, something that remains unidentified? You can be an expert on the cases, you can be an expert on the history, you can be an expert investigator, but even there, you're still basically chasing, chasing phantoms. Right. You're, you don't know what may 
finally turn and stare you in the eye. And as a result, you still have to be, and I would like to say, courageous enough to look under or look, open every door. Mm -hmm. To be so totally myopic as even so many scientists that you have a preconceived theory that, well, I believe UFOs are this. And then you, didn't, you denounce and you dismiss everything else because you are transfixed on, well, UFOs are only psychic phenomena or they're only, uh, you know, as far as uh, projections, holographic projections from another dimension, that type of thing. Well, then, you're, again, you're, you're, you're shutting out so many other good possible cases that provide uh, meat, provide material that all would lend themselves you know, towards a final resolution. And that's why Roswell, specifically because it encompasses every aspect of the phenomenon. Any other, just about every other UFO case is a, a fleeting event. Somebody sees something in a nighttime sky. Occasionally you see something daytime. It may be a close encounter. It may be a second kind, a landing. It may be a third kind, an occupant sighting. But there it is, and there it goes. You know, seldom, if ever, is it something you can take into a laboratory. But with Roswell, you have everything. You have you just hundreds of witnesses, both military and civilian. You have multiple bases involved. You have a transference of actual physical wreckage. You have a recovery operation involving physical wreckage and remains. So you also have bodies involved. And so you then have a potential of tons of photographs and film that are off hidden someplace aside from the actual physical evidence. And so every and any time you have someone who says, I may have a photograph, or I know where there may be some physical evidence. I can't tell both of you how often we have had false alarms in army footlockers and down behind retaining walls, down in basements and under crawl spaces and behind fireplace brick and uh, as far as in water heater tanks and out below and beneath patio concrete slabs. And what do you do? That one time you just poo-pooed, you laugh it off, may have been, you know, the golden goose, may have been the pot of gold. So you check everyone. And again, many times you do wind up, you know, with a little egg on your face. You do paint yourself in a corner. And only because you rely on witnesses, you rely on experts to come up with conclusive analyses determinations, and then that's where you draw your own conclusions. It's not a case of wherever Don Schmidt claims this or Don Schmidt says it's this or it's that. No, 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 no. It's always been, and I love the fact, I think smart people have always surrounded themselves with smart people. That you have people that you can rely on that push the buttons, know which buttons to push know where to go for the answers. And you place great faith in these people. Mm -hmm. So you still should be a gentleman and a good enough researcher that even when they slip up, you still accept responsibility because you gave it to them in the first place. You place them in that room, in that corner. And then as a result, if it fails, 
you should still accept responsibility. And no one can ever accuse me of passing the buck. Whenever we have been wrong about something, it's been my fault. And you just move on. You go on to the next lead, the next possible breakthrough information because you keep moving forward. You can't become so transfixed on a preconceived theory that it's the only one you will ever entertain. And to me, that is totally faulty science. I agree with you there. And I think, you know, when research is stagnant, you know, that's when you're in trouble. If you're not coming up with new ideas and a new perspective, on how to tackle some of these problems and issues in the field, then you're really not doing your job. Correct. And um, I know the best of, well, I'll say the best of us, but I mean the best of you guys that have been doing this decade upon decade upon decade. You know, you do sit back and you look at your anthology of work and you notice the evolution of your work and how you tackle these issues and how they've been in the popular climate as well as just our exclusive community here. And what would you say has most changed from now to then in your way of thinking about the phenomenon? To me, it's personally, it's become much more melancholic in that when I think back when we first started the investigation, and it was one of the things that Heineck you know, personally loved. Uh, there was a period where our chief investigator, Alan Hendry, had moved to Arizona and became a tech writer for Hughes Aircraft. And then Dr. Heineck found himself more and more sitting at a desk. He was, uh, you know, serving as the editor of the International UFO uh, Reporter, which was our monthly uh, uh, magazine at that time. And he just hated it. He longed to be out in the field. He just loved whether it was Papua New Guinea or his Dalin or as far as uh, in, down in the Amazon of Brazil or uh, even up a, as far as in some of the, the mountains of, uh, you know, uh, Helena, as far as the state of Washington, that type of thing, that he loved to make things happen. He loved to be there at Socorro, New Mexico, for example, within hours after it happened, because you were then in control of your own destiny. You were there to make decisions. You were there to control the very nature of the investigation. And then at the end of his life, when he was able to go out to the Hudson Valley, the boomerang sightings in the early 80s, out through New York and Connecticut, and some of us on the board at Cupos at that time, we used to joke that Alan's back in his, um, you know, element, that he once again is able to play cowboys and Indians. And we, we meant that in all due respect, because, again, you're getting your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. You're actually out sifting through, as he would say, separating the wheat from the chaff. And it's no different than we've led now five archeological digs at the Roswell crash site. I love the way History Channel on Ancient Aliens, you know, the other night, oh, Don was just a participant in one of the digs. No, I led all five of them. You know, please, you know, and yet you go out of your way to always reduce our involvement. Like we're the, we're the Johnny come latelys. No, I'm right. sorry. 
you know, we've always tried to be in the forefront. And so uh, I, I take personal umbrage in that. And again, I learned that from Heineck. Don't be afraid to be actually out on the battlefield, to be in the trenches, because you, you may not come back, you know, figuratively, but nonetheless, you're the one who was still reporting back from the front lines. Yes. You're not just, oh, I read a report, or oh, I read so-and-so's book. I, no, I think that's what we all kind of live for when we're in this community. I know I do, you know, yeah. whether it's um, assisting on some local investigations going on or like with my own sighting a, a few months ago, you know, just being able to actively participate in an experience, True. even if it's following up to somebody else's witness, you know, but I think <laughs> it that, is amazing. And that's what I try to tell people that ufology and, you know, working in this community can be so rewarding because it is interactive. If you get out there, if you get, absolutely. what do you, what do you call it? Armchair research Armchair you know? or keyboard <laughs> investigation. And when I right. think of with Heineck, how often we would be in the field with witnesses recreating an experience. 1.30 in the morning, we would be out in the middle of nowhere and having the people relive what they had experienced just days before. And then observing their behavior, how they would become emotional and even frightened, which would speak volumes for the fact that they were very anxious they were you know actually frightened to be back as we would say at the scene of the crime and nothing develops you know and and shapes an investigation more than returning back to the scene of the crime right and, and getting back to roswell quickly and talking about the the uh, you know the the sadness of every time i go back to new mexico it becomes a little more lonely because Everybody's gone now. When I think back over the last 30, 25, 20 years, and when so many of the principal first-hand witnesses were there, and they didn't come forward, they didn't call and you know, raise their hand, and, oh, you never called me, or you forgot. No, no, we would have to track them down. One lead to another, and this is before the internet, and we had to, you know, use hackers with the Veterans Administration. We did credit checks on people. We went through air certification. We claimed that we were compiling lists for base squadron reunions, all under the pretext that, well, we just are trying to find these people. And we were very successful at it, but it was time consuming. But nonetheless, we found hundreds of them. And the saddest aspect of that right now is they are all gone. Mm -hmm. And how many of them we found a year after they passed away, mm -hmm. months after they passed away. There was one, on one occasion where we called and it was the wife who picked up the phone and she was just returning from the funeral. Terrible. And the level of frustration because it hits you like no other experience in your life that whatever information they possess, whatever they knew, it's gone forever. You missed it by a day, a month, a year, gone forever. And I, I defy 
any other investigators to be able to speak as far as to that level of frustration on a regular basis. Because again, Roswell involves so many witnesses and as a result, we have had the good fortune of speaking to so many of these people, providing them with an opportunity to go on the record and how their stories, you know, all corroborate one another. Absolutely unbelievable, absolutely fantastic. Well, I think that is also important to note with research today, um, which is something I also tell experiencers often in different groups that I'm in. It's, it's also important for us to document and keep notes of what we experience because there is such a shortage of true research, of true field work and follow-up, not maybe not just an initial interview, but true follow-up, you know, keeping tabs on people over the decades to see how these events unfold for them or unfold publicly with any kind of work being done. Mm -hmm, and that's what you really just don't see and I don't think because there's a lack of want, I think it's people don't realize that that's their call to action. You know, I'll, I'll pull from Kennedy a little bit here, you know, and his famous speech, you know, ask not mm -hmm. what you, what ufology can do for you, but what you can do for ufology. You have to get out there. It's and make great. Things happen. Make things happen. <laughs> you do. Too many sit and wait for the phone to ring, and it, it, it won't ring. <laughs> and it won't at all. And you have to be active by reporting what you're going through, if you have a sighting or if there's high strangeness involved. And you also have to be active in following up with the people that you do report to, or at least documenting your own you know, experiences the best you can. And that might just be keeping a journal or a calendar. It's very simple, but a lot of people just don't realize that you can <laughs> help your own case as much as possible by doing the simplest of things or by seeking out people that want to help you. They are kind of out there privately too, but and the best are always local. <laughs> well, that's, that's but, usually Use the example of uh, Project Blue Book, which was declassified in 1977 during the Carter administration. And you have 13,000 cases, 701 that remained unexplained. Mm -hmm. How many ufologists have gone and made any attempt to reinvestigate any of those 701? The fact that the Air Force, that Project Blue Book, and Heineck was the, you know, the chief scientific consultant on the project, and he would be the first to admit that they never really investigated any of those cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, that we all know in Grant certain right. this that Blue Book was nothing more than a PR front for the actual investigation. But the point being that because there was such a cursory investigation that wouldn't it be great, and as, as certainly as demonstrated with Roswell, that for lack of current activity, you'd go back, track down the original witnesses if they're still alive. And I think you would find out there is still a wealth of material that could still be looked into. And that yes. you would find that a particular case that the Air Force had just summarily dismissed, 
now it's come forward and become a more substantive, more solid, you know, UFO occurrence. And so we all have these events that have happened in our backyards. So it's just a matter of, again, get out and make things happen. Because as I've mentioned, that after the witnesses are gone, it's too late. It's nothing more that can be done short of the government, short of the military releasing files, releasing documents and saying, well, we've covered this up these past 50 years, but you know, here's you know, what actually happened. Not gonna happen anytime soon. So we have to do that. And so anytime I hear a ufologist or a researcher say, hey, I'm not getting any phone calls, I'm not getting any reports, again, they're there. Even yeah. go to the public library and pull out, you know, the microfish. The, the microfish. I love doing that. Yeah. Yeah. All the old cases. Again, your backyard. And you'll find yeah. the people are still there. You'll find police reports. You'll find military cases. You'll find, you know, just a wealth of material if you go and look for it. So, well, and not to completely diss this younger generation that I, I feel like I have a foot in each and this young millennials and maybe a boomer generation here with how I research. There are advantages to digging around online or like Grant says, you know, following the boards. And mm -hmm. it actually, it led me to a comment that you had made on Facebook that I thought was rather interesting. I think it was back in June and the topic was abductions and the discussion of travis walton came mm -hmm. up and i believe your comment was i've spoken with travis it's not really abductions we'll see who understands and nobody really commented back i did i was like i think i know I remember. yes yeah because would you I, please I told... elaborate on that and maybe tell us your evolution of thinking when it comes to abductions well and it's just singling out the walton case as a separate incident that it had nothing to do with what we have come to know as missing time slash abduction reports these cases where people whether through regression hypnotic regression or through uh you know, even total recall of the event would claim that they have been physically taken on board a craft, subjected to some form of physical examination, and uh, then returned to their car, their home, what have you, that type of thing. And any student, anybody who knows anything of the Walton case, it doesn't, it, it, it never smacked of a, an actual abduction situation. And for someone who has actually been to the very location, the very site of where it transpired, to have been there with Travis and to see, for example, the original two-track road where his crew had finished for the day, November 5th of 1975, and coming down aside from that mountain, and then seeing that craft and then seeing that valley where that object, you know, ascended and then started to pass in their direction, stopping the truck and Travis racing out and getting basically too close to the object, being zapped by that blue beam of light and to see 
he's his description of being flung backwards about 30 feet and slammed against those boulders, those rocks that are still there. And then thinking, my God, how could he possibly have even survived that alone? I mean, he would have been fatally injured just from that experience in itself. And so I would always talk to Travis and we'd always sit and, and he never, you know, would argue with me. He would always be the reason that he himself, you know, he accepted the label of, you know, being an abductee, but he was never comfortable with it. And as we know, in the movie Fire in the Sky, he was always extremely, you know, apprehensive to support the movie because that entire abduction scenario as dramatized in the movie had nothing to do, had no basis in fact of the actual uh, Travis Walton description, whether it was through his personal recall. And when you think about it for having been missing for five full days, that even regression brought nothing else forward. There was nothing else there. There was this mental block but even the mental block, I would argue with Travis, because maybe Travis, you weren't really with us. You were unconscious. You were possibly dead. And I would use the term that they took the paddles to you. They brought you back. They didn't abduct you. They accidentally fatally injured you. They took you on board and the next thing you're lying on this table and you wake up and they kept you until it was safe to return you back and not to where you were originally picked up the top of that mountain where he would have frozen to death if they just would have deposited him back where this originally happened but they they dropped him off down in heber down at the foothills of the snowflake uh, mountains across from a, a, a three uh, pay phones, three uh, phone booths, where he could call for help, where he could call his brother and that they could come and pick him up, having no idea that he had been missing for five full days. So that's where, and this has been going on for a number of years now, and that's why I'm very proud of Travis and that he now, and that's why he's much more outspoken. And that's why he's been able to go back to the site with even a level of, almost uh, feeling that he's been given another chance, that they brought him back, that yeah. they revived him. I just, I just watched he, a, yeah. a newer documentary on Amazon Prime, I believe, about Travis Walton's experience. And it's, it's a far, far cry to hear him uh, speak about everything and i know you know travis everybody Very talks well. about how overly kind this man is and how Very honest he you know appears to be and trustworthy and so to hear him speak on that level and to separate it from the hollywood entertainment version of fire in the sky that's you know i talk to a lot of people in and outside of ufology it seems like the more i do shows like this or interview people 
people outside of ufology come and talk to me about this world. And that's one of the first things they bring up is, oh my God, it's so terrifying. There's fire in the sky. I saw it in theaters and, you know, and. Just even a little background on even fire in the sky. When Paramount uh, had hired a screenwriter, Peabody award-winning screenwriter, mm -hmm. Tracy Torme, who I've known longer than most people in the field. And Paramount had contacted me to put out a statement on the movie's behalf to attend the premiere and to be part of a, uh, a press conference endorsing the movie. Mm -hmm. And Tracy immediately calls me up and he goes, Don, stay away from it. Don't get involved because, as he put it, they have totally bastardized my script mm -hmm. that Tracy, who had just come off writing the CBS miniseries, Intruders, mm -hmm. which was based on the late Bud Hopkins book, Intruders. Yep. And Paramount felt that to justify the film being a feature presentation, to put it on a big screen juxtaposed to, you know, just another TV made for TV movie that they had to raise the sensationalism of this missing time. And that's where they totally fictionized the abduction. They created an abduction sequence yeah. that Travis to this day has never recounted. He has never endorsed, much to his credit. And that's where I will stand with him 100% that his story has not deviated. He is still trying to get Hollywood to do a remake to present it as it actually happened. But the fact that Paramount, quite simply, to just sensationalize it, to make it feature film worthy, that was the only reason that they created that abduction sequence. Because again, I just, I tell all your viewers that it had nothing to do with Travis's actual experience. Well, I'm very interested and was excited to hear you say that because um, part of my research has always has been um, this journey of kind of, and Grant, I would like you to speak about it because it kind of led me to your work and things that interest uh, your pursuits. And it is this um, correlation between near-death experiences or the afterlife and the abduction scenario. And Grant is, one of the only researchers out there that you know is making these comparisons but experiencers have been making these comparisons for years and years in their groups when they discuss these things so grant do you have any comments on what he said about travis's experience and abductions i know we discuss um, no yeah, abductions I, I a lot Travis has picked that up. He has, I mean, he, now he talks about the fact that he may have been dead. The question I wanted to ask Don sort of related because how, how much abduction stuff did the center do? Because I know you, there's another famous case that you were involved with, a case that I'm very interested in, that's a Sherry Wild case. Yes, yes. And you brought in this top researcher. One of the things I'd like you to comment on, or her case, what you can talk about her case, but the thing that when she brought the regressionist in, when I talked to her, she said the thing that fascinated her the most 
was when the regressionist takes her back to the event on the road where they stopped the car. Yes. Uh, yeah. She, she, they say, he says, what time is it? And she says, I didn't look at my watch. And he said, well, look at your watch. Mm -hmm. And then she said, she looked at her watch and went, oh, it's like 10 after 10 or whatever it was. Right, and the right. other thing was when they asked her what the street sign was. And apparently yeah, this is yeah. a top researcher guy that did the, the regression stuff. And she talked about this fact that she was basically going back to the experience because you talked about time and space before. And I remember when she mm -hmm. talked about that, it was pretty weird that she was basically saying, I went back and sort of relived the experience, but there was different events taking place that I was looking at the street sign when I first did look at the street sign, I was looking at my watch and stuff like that. So in terms of the regression, how much work did uh, the center do? And can you talk a bit about the Sherry Wild case? Because I think she's, they're doing a movie on her now. It's yes. kind of a, a very prominent case. And the fact that it wasn't so much even the center as it was Dr. Heineck. As we know that Heineck was, was involved in 73 with the uh, Pascagoula case with both Hickson and Parker. And then he was certainly involved as far as with Travis's case in 75. Yeah. So uh, Heineck, I, I mean, there again, he was not afraid to get, and especially at that time, in areas which were, were considered very fringe, very extreme at that time. No different than Heineck in the late 70s was becoming more and more intrigued with crash retrieval cases as originally proposed by the late Len Stringfield. But getting back to Sherry's case, uh, we worked with the late Stanley Mitchell, who had his office on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And I was referred to him by Dr. Heineck. I was the only other researcher at KUFOS that Heineck referred was the society. Okay. He had developed battlefield hypnosis during the Korean War, where they were doing surgeries, amputations on the battlefield with nothing more than hypnosis. You can imagine that. I mean, I watched video footage of patients undergoing open heart surgery talking to the doctors during you know, the surgery in nothing more than a hypnotic trance. And he worked with law enforcement throughout the country where a witness would only recall a fleeing vehicle. And then under uh, Stan Mitchell's regression would not only remember the color, but also the make and then the license number. So Mitchell always demonstrated that what the eyes didn't see, the brain did. And that was the same techniques that through him, we applied with uh, abduction cases. And, and, and Sherry Wow was a wonderful example of where, because we couldn't get her. And as you know, Grant, it was a broad daylight. It was a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, she was to rendezvous with a, a girlfriend at that time to go into Madison, Wisconsin to go shopping at the local mall. And she wouldn't arrive till afternoon. Her girlfriend had changed back to her, her house you know, clothes, giving up on her. And it's like, well, I'm on time. What's the problem? And then she was shocked to see it was two hours later. And so this was something that then through this whole chain of events, which then involved her husband and then later her own two daughters in realizing uh, 10 years later that something much more had happened. And then through the regression and as she thought was a work crew 
up ahead on this hillside, which was rather unusual on a Sunday that there would be a work crew, you know, working both sides of the road. And when she was asked, well, did you see vehicles? Well, no, there were no trucks, there were no cars, but yet there they were all working. And then as she proceeded and then talking, they were all dressed the same way and they were all very short. And then as she kept talking about, and then when one of them turned and I see the eyes and I kept trying to get a flee, I kept trying to get away. And Mitchell couldn't get her beyond that point. And then he thought, well, let's ask, do you see a street sign? Do you look at your watch? And then she is able to give the actual street, as you mentioned, Grant. And then she says, and I put down the clutch. She was driving a Volkswagen bug, a, a beetle, okay. stick. And then we knew we had her for the first time. She was beyond that block. Yeah. And then she described, you know, the entire situation. Wonderful case. And uh, the fact that <laughs> there is a screenplay being developed as far as a movie. I love the fact that Mitchell was able to bring out as much as he did. And mainly because he allowed her to speak freely. He's, he, asked, he asked no leading questions. Just, what do you see now? What are you experiencing now? And he was open. We were using a technique that Dr. Richard Haynes had developed. It was a three-stage regression where you first take the, per the, the party back to the actual occurrence. And you have them relive it, first person, in all of its terror and all of its fear. Uh, you just want the emotion to present itself as, as high as it originally was at the very time of the occurrence. And then you bring them out, and then you take them back down. And the second time, they're now just an observer. Mm -hmm. They are seeing it as an observer, and they have a, a, even a curtain in front of them if they ever need to quickly close the curtain because they can't watch anymore. And then the peek through, and then, oh, now what do you see? Now what is happening? So you provide them a security blanket. And then the third time you take them back, and this time, and now what are you thinking? What are your thoughts to what is happening now? It, it, it was wonderful. I think it's one of the reasons that it, it allowed uh, Sherry to come out with as much information as she did. And uh, it's a tragic case in that it also estranged her from her, her husband, her daughters, and it's an ongoing situation. Even it started to involve her two daughters, as well as her grandson, who was describing experiences from his bedroom. You know, the little men standing at the foot of his bed when he was five years old. So um, it, it needs to be a movie and believe me. And as you know, Grant, they will not have to sensationalize any of her story. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful, uh, you know, I won't say experience, but it needs to be told because I'm sure there are many other Sherry's out there who need her bravery, her courage to lead them out from the shadows and also get the help that they may need. What, what did Mitchell think of this? He was a top guy. Did you work with, did he work with other clients? And skeptical. 
but he was convinced it was an actual experience. But for a guy that has never probably done a UFO case, uh, was he kind of shocked at, at realizing this may have been for real? When she was reliving the experience in the first hand, and when she described, for example, being inside the craft and how cold it was, and she immediately broke out and, and goosebumps, yeah. and she was shaking. And whatever she described, her body physiologically reacted to it as well. And, and Mitchell was going, my God, Don, I never saw that before. Because her, her very, you know, her very demeanor, her very, you know, body physiologically was reacting to what she was reliving, what she was describing. Uh, Mitchell, for example, he would go out to New York and uh, on occasion he would work with Broadway stars where if uh, they needed to, for example, cry on cue, that he would be able to provide them with a, a, a particular word that would, would spark emotion, that within the dialogue, the script within the performance, that they would hear that word and they would immediately start crying. Well, she had been given no pre, you know, hypnotic uh, suggestion and what to react to. This was all spontaneous. This was all as though she were actually reliving it as it transpired. And Mitchell was profoundly affected. It was one of the reasons that, also much to his credit, he worked with her. We did another series of re regression with Sherry and it was all pro bono. It was all as far as had no charge to Sherry and even others that we worked with thereafter because he too was becoming more and more intrigued that he was on the forefront of something truly you know, profound, something truly uh, amazing, fantastic, as the, you know, the human experience would describe it. She, she spoke very highly of you, that you sort of like rescued her, that nobody was, uh, was, was dealing with it and stuff like that, and that you stepped in. You spent a lot of time with her, correct, over the years trying to bring her through this thing? I did, and um, I like to believe I've always been there for her. I've often advised her who to stay away from, especially when it came to amateurs who were planting other imagery and things. And I would always, now Sherry, you know, I, I need you to step back. It was no different than, now Sherry, please don't read anything on the subject. Don't discuss, for example, in between the sessions with, with Stanley Mitchell. I don't want you talking to anybody. I don't want you discussing this even with family members. I want this to remain as pristine as possible because granted, as you know, we have colleagues that have regressed people dozens of times and each regression feeding on the previous until they you know, get that information that they're looking for. And one of the things that Sherry, you know, leading up to that first day with, with, with Mitchell, she kept saying, you know, I, I, I'm so concerned that there's nothing there, that we're going to find nothing. And it's like, Sherry, please, we will be just as happy for you to come away knowing that you can move on with your life. You, are, you can, you know, accept the fact that nothing more happened than possibly, uh, you know, you for whatever reason, you had some other you know, experience, fugue state, 
or you momentarily fell asleep, you were daydreaming, what have you, anything but that, that you could, you know, get on with your life and still being open to something much more. So we constantly assured her, don't provide anything that you feel we desire, that we need, that we're looking for. That's not what we're there for. We're there solely to provide you with some professional help that will enable you to um, you know, move forward, deal with this in your life, and, and then take appropriate actions as to you know, how to uh, further treat you know, such an experience and also be there to protect you in the event of ridicule. You know, Sherry is still, to this day, and she works in real estate, the moment even potential customers hear of, of who she really is, you know, it's like, come on, people, come out of the dark ages. Yeah. You know, please, you, you're living back in the 50s and 60s, you know, Air Force involvement. You know, get your heads out of the sand. If you still think this is a nonsense, you know, a topic, a taboo topic, you're, you know, demonstrating more of your own, you know, blindness than Sherry is. And that Sherry's been brave enough to step forward. And I need, and I, you would, you would agree, Grant, she yeah. needs to be applauded for this. Absolutely. She, she's uh, gone through a lot of pain, especially when you give up your family the way she did. And physical pain. Man. And physical pain, as you know, Grant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she has had, you know, and she still yeah. uh, is, is having a lot of uh, uh, problems as far as with her personal health. And, and much of it related to at least what, what has happened all, during all those years. So, and hardly the type of thing you would wish on anybody. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I want to so, ask you, I'll, I'll give it back to Nicole. I want to ask you two, because we skipped over Roswell. I had two sort of small questions on Roswell. The one you had already ans answered, and that was that basically it's over. They, all, the, all the witnesses are dead. But the two aspects that interested me on the Roswell case, and I want you to just sort of bring you up to date on what the latest is. One was the live alien story, and the other was the metal research being done at Wright-Patterson. You guys worked on both those. Can you sort of elaborate what, what's the latest on that? The survivor at Roswell was something that initially we only had famber, uh, family testimony to secondhand, whether it was the sheriff of Chavez County in Roswell at that time, or even the uh, firefighters who got out to the site before the military came in. And then more and more, we were getting uh, testimony from people who worked at the hospital, the base hospital. And then we were actually getting testimony from former military, uh, deathbed confessions. And then eventually we secured firsthand testimony that yes, indeed, there was a survivor. And then we tied that into the, the testimony, the deathbed testimony of Black Mac, uh, Marion Magruder, who was a colonel who was part of the War College, class of 47-48. And he was assigned to Wright-Patterson in April of 1948. They were brought in as the War College. They were shown actual material, debris from the Roswell incident from just a year before. And they were taken to another room as he testified to five of his sons independent of one another, you know, just, you know, months and weeks before he died, 1995, as I recall. And then he described the survivor. He described in April of 48 that they were presented 
as far as an opportunity to actually see the survivor from Roswell and that it appeared very sad as though it was being treated as a guinea pig, as though it was, it was, uh, it was more of a prisoner than anything else, that um, it was the way we will even treat, you know, a captured animal, a new species of sort. And uh, in fact, he, his heart went out to it. He felt as though that uh, as a higher intelligence that we were hardly, you know, serving it and learning from it in any capacity that we were holding it hostage. And uh, so it, it, it demonstrated that level of arrogance that then uh, trans, uh, transponds as far as even the whole element of that we feel like Will Smith in an independent state, that we could just crawl in the cockpit, sit down and just fly, you know, you know this recovered alien craft. And I maintain it's part of the same human arrogance that after all this time, it's still a cover up of ignorance, that we still can't uh, you know, cross this barrier of the technology, that it is still so far beyond our own technology that we can't get beyond you know, that, that uh, transference of, of information whether it's with a survivor or whether it's with the actual hardware, we can't find the odd button. And for those who claim that uh, we're flying a fleet of flying saucers as we speak, you know, to me, that's uh, you know, part of that human arrogance. I, I, again, I, I see no evidence of that. And um, I, I, I find it more of a cover-up of ignorance after all this time. I, I, I'm glad you said that because I, I've been saying the same thing looking at high, the highest level people I could. And you talked to a lot of high level people that were there. And, and so talk about the medal. And then the, 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 yeah, before yeah. I throw back to Nicole, uh, you know, Whitley wrote the book on Majestic where yeah. Jesse Marcel Jr. was brought into the sub-basement of the Capitol and Dick D'Amato said, this yes. is for real. Yes. Did you ever deal with uh, General Exxon? And did yes. you ever deal with D'Amato? Did D'Amato come to you? about the Area 51 thing when he was running around trying to figure out what was going on. And talk about the medal and these, this behind the scenes stuff with uh, the general and with Dick D'Amato. Well, first of all, as far as the medal, because that was part of your previous question, all of the witnesses, that's one of the things that anyone, whether it's Annie Jacobson with Area 51 or uh, you know those who espouse that uh, this was uh, even German technology as Tom DeLong does as far as in conjunction with uh, the aliens, that type of thing, you know, the Nazis that escaped down to South America, and they somehow co you know, collaborated as far as in coming up with the device that crashed in New Mexico in 47, that type of thing. They never addressed the wreckage, the almost nearly indestructible wreckage that was recovered, that you couldn't cut it, you couldn't burn it, that even a bullet wouldn't penetrate it. And then the fiber optics that were described, which fiber optics wouldn't come into vogue until around 1970. The memory material, the same type of wreckage that again was nearly indestructible, but this you could crease, you could fold, and then this would release your grip or you'd place it onto a table, it would unravel, it would flow like water right before your eyes. None of those witnesses of those alternative explanations ever described that type of wreckage. Yet 
unanimously all the legitimate witnesses of Roswell, whether military, whether civilian, even down to the children involved, report those same characteristics. And then when you have General Arthur Exxon, who was Lieutenant Colonel at T2, which involved intelligence and technical research at that time. So this would have been a foreign technology as it eventually became known, FTD. And as a result, Exxon, who was a trainee at foreign technology in 47, was aware of the Roswell material coming in. And I will also throw into the mix the late Colonel Robert Friend, who was the second last director of Project Blue Book. And how many know that Friend was also stationed at Wright Field in July of 47? I didn't know that. Yeah. And he too discounted the balloon explanation because he, why would they be bringing a balloon in for testing and analysis here? So he also raised the level of the material coming in. Now, granted, he would only suggest that it was a broken arrow, that it was a, you know, a, a, you know, a, an errant atomic bomb, you know, that had been retrieved. And it was like, well, Colonel, we had no other bombs after Fat Man and Little and Little Boy in our arsenal at that time after you know the end of World War II. So uh, where did this uh, other atomic bomb, you know, come from? And he would just smile at me, you know, every time I would bring it up to him. But, but he, he knew it involves something much higher as far as, uh, as, far as uh, uh, their security, their secrecy at that time. But here was Exxon, who would describe that at first they thought it had to be Soviet in nature because no one could recognize the wreckage that came in. And then for all the testing, the tensile strength, the microscopic analysis, all of the metallurgical examination of the material, as Exxon described. Now, Exxon, who would go on to become the base commander at Wright Path in 1964. So for him to say that it was a unanimous consensus at foreign technology that the material that was brought in to Wright Field within days after Roswell, was from space, that it was not manufactured on this earth. Albeit it was secondhand, but nonetheless, it's a former base commander at Wright Pat. It's someone who was there. And then you toss it in with all the other witnesses who were there at the time that the materials came in. And the fact that you can document from the Pentagon to General Roger Ramey at uh, Carswell Army Airfield, from the press who were documenting, as far as the transfers of the wreckage, that it was all going to Wright Field for analysis and breakdown and testing. A documented fact, even that FBI telex that went out from the Bureau office uh, in Dallas that evening, which refuted General Ramey at the infamous weather balloon press conference that it's nothing more than a Rowan target device. And the, the Dallas FBI is saying, oh no, uh, the material is still going on the right field because we're in telephonic co conversation with right field and the wreckage is still going to right field no matter what General Ramey says. So 
there's a, a chain of involvements. It's for the same reason that we sought and tracked down as many of the right field witnesses as we could. And then to find out that within months after, right field accepted and tested the wreckage that they contracted Patel Institute just down the road in Columbus, Ohio, just down the road from Dayton, and that they had contracted Patel, provided they would supply them with enough basis for research to come up with what they called self-healing metal. Well, isn't it interesting that we're now hearing that very terminology being bandied about? Self-healing metal. Well, that was in reference to Roswell. And that's precisely what, when we learned that there was such a project and that we learned that there was a pro project report, project number two, that came out in 1949. So then we were hot on the trail for obviously project report number one. And we found out that the very scientists who were involved, who had made earlier statements, who had access, who claimed that they had seen actual wreckage from Roswell, had held it in their hands, and that it clearly demonstrated memory characteristics and was nearly indestructible they were part of those very projects. They wrote up as far as project, as far as assessments of those testings that went on months after Roth. So there is your connection. And then as we came up with the demonstration of nitinol that came out in the late 60s, which was the closest thing that we came up with, the combination of both as far as nickel and titanium, and that whether, in, especially in surgical instrumentation, that you can twist and that you can, uh, you can bend it and it returns back to its original shape and size, all dating back to Roswell in July of 1947. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, this is not just coincidence. Uh, the amazing thing is that you can plug this all in and it all connects back to Wright Field, Wright Patterson, and the very witnesses back then. You had asked about Dick D'Amato. And Dick D'Amato, who had met with Jess Marcel Jr., as you mentioned, right at the Capitol building, and they went to a lower level. And D'Amato told him that this was all true, that Roswell was true, but that it was part of you know the black budget and that it was buried so deep that much of the black budget was to ensure that Roswell remained secret, that it would never see the light of day. And I remember Jess telling me thereafter that when he returned home, that he was never so uneasy, even in the plane, right back, that he felt that uh, you know something was going to happen. And that's from someone who had served over in Vietnam. And then, as we, we, we know, Grant, how, now just imagine, in, at the age of 69, he is reactivated in the Air National Guard, and he is sent over to Iraq to serve two tours of duty. 
and he returns home a shadow of his man of a man he is broken i mean here someone who was an athlete someone who was an avid bicyclist motorcyclist i remember we would have contests jumping up from a standstill up on picnic tables and to see him now with leg braces and uh, it destroyed him and his family and I can tell you this for a fact, is convinced of this day that it was to take him out, that it was to destroy him. And it, it effectively worked. And so, and that's what's sad that people, I'm sorry, I've reached a point in my life that there's no such thing as coincidence any longer, that things happen for a reason. And I defy any of the scoffers, the debunkers, to cite me another example of someone who is 69 years old and is reactivated by the military. Sorry, doesn't happen, hasn't happened, and it only happened with Colonel Jesse Marcel Jr. And once again, it destroyed him because he wasn't backing down. Even after uh, Captain then Major James McAndrews, who came out with both the Project Mogul report and then with the crash dummy report in uh, May of 1997. And most are aware, Grant, that McAndrew was calling up Colonel uh, Marcel on a regular basis wow. and was arguing with him over and over again, like, you know, Marcel, what is it going to take you to finally accept that all you saw in your parents' kitchen that night were pieces of shrunk masking tape with flowers painted on them. And to his credit, you know, Colonel Marcel never, never backed down one inch. And the last time that McAndrew called him, McAndrew, according to both Jess and his wife, Linda, said he was screaming over the phone, what's it gonna take? for you to finally accept that. And then Colonel Marcel finally, very politely said to him, well, first of all, Major, I would remind you to have a little more respect for a senior officer. Wow. And then you will never get me to testify that I saw anything less than what my father presented to us that night in our very kitchen at the Marcel residence at that time. And what's, what's crucial here, Grant, is the fact that then McAndrew very snidely went, well, Colonel, I guess we'll never know what you actually saw back then. Wow. And he conceded. The point is, for the first time, the very author of the Project Mogul report and the crash dummy report conceded that he accepted that whatever Major Marcel and his son saw that evening, that he'll never know, or at least he would not accept that it was the Mogul balloon that he so, you know, <laughs> passionately tried to tried to prove. And so that's again what makes you know Jess Jr. such a hero in my eyes, because he never backed down one inch. He never gave in, you know, one inch as to
his hands something, as his father said, not made on this earth. Beautiful. Nicole, go ahead. You're on mute. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, had to, I, I let I, my I dog relive. in. And he I was going to be so. he was going to be a little loud. So um, I did want to backtrack just um, a little bit. Moments ago, when you were talking about these um, or working with these heavy hitters in regression and mm -hmm. hypnosis therapy, like Bud Hopkins, yes, and Don Mac, and Mac, there there is a pretty good base of skeptics out there that disagree with regression or hypnosis and they they use it as ammunition in a way um falling back on the argument that it's you know pseudoscience or it can be too subjective i was wondering if you would maybe round out your thoughts on that a little bit because yes. it seems you do think of it as a useful tool for experiencers. So. That's what's, what's crucial by your very description that it is a useful tool. It's mm -hmm. part of the process, it's part of the investigation. When it becomes the sole tool, like and as Grant, as we were talking about Sherry Wilde, the fact that there too, we went back to that stretch of road. We saw the name of that street. We saw uh, as far as we relive as far as that entire drive sequence that Sunday morning to go meet as far as with her girlfriend to go shopping, that type of thing. And we often would sit with, with Bud Hopkins. And one of the things that we always would counsel him in that he would retain more information to serve as a control that he wouldn't put everything out in his writing. He wouldn't put everything out on the table. We did the same thing with our Roswell investigation. You just don't put it all out there to potentially contaminate and coach, you know, future witnesses. And unfortunately, whether it was with the first book, Missing Time, and then certainly with Intruders, more and more of it was, you know, being released to the public. And, uh, to, to our chagrin, we disagreed with that. And Bud did not have the medical, he didn't have the, um, the hypnotic regression credentials that would have been preferred, such as like Yvonne Smith has in Los Angeles and, and others of that ilk. Uh, John Max started with Harvard Medical School, but there too, he was not trained in regression. And what's interesting is that whether it was what Bud Hopkins, whether it was with Dr. John Mack, whether it was what, uh, with Dr. David Jacobs, much of their own philosophy, much of their own interpretation of the UFO experience, the UFO event, spills over. For Bud, his abductees, the people that he has worked with, come across as being very violated. That is, hence he uses the word intruders, that they in many respects are like rape victims. They have been assaulted. They have been removed from their bedrooms, their homes, their cars. 
because that's how Bud perceives the UFO phenomena. With John Mack, he was very much into the environment, and as a result, his abductees perceived themselves to be like chosen ambassadors, that they were selected to go out and represent the best interest of the so-called you know, intruders, the invaders, the aliens, that they were part of this vanguard to go out and educate you know, the world as to saving the planet. So it was his personal uh, philosophy that was spilling over into his research. And then with Dave Jacobs, where he believes in the total infiltration of the phenomenon, that they are slowly taking over, that through the crossbreeding of aliens and uh, human beings, that they have slowly now taken over the highest elements of our education, our corporations, our government, and hence this book, The Threat, for example, that uh, they're getting ready to slowly usher in their total dominance, their takeover of planet Earth. So that is Dr. Jacobs' personal philosophy of the UFO phenomenon. Well, getting back to Stanley Mitchell, what was wonderful in working with him, he had no prior UFO involvement. He worked strictly with medical doctors, as I described, he developed battlefield hypnosis. So in working with doctors at that level, he worked with doctors as far as their, their surgical procedures. He worked with law enforcement in the actual investigation of criminal uh, investigation in going through this process of elimination to derive a final solution as to who the primary suspects were, who drove what particular vehicle, who could provide the most detailed description of a potential suspect, and utilizing hypnosis as a tool that then could serve to substantiate that investigation. Now granted, the whole problem with hypnosis as to UFO investigation, we can't provide that criminal suspect. We can't provide that abductee. We can't, uh, abductor. We can't provide that physical evidence that will finally demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're dealing with actual intruders. Something, someone who is actually interacting with people here on planet Earth. And so with Mitchell, we could always substantiate his hypnosis. If his uh, hypnosis could demonstrate a license number, it could be verified thereafter. If his hypnosis could then serve to provide a basis for uh, a surgical procedure, again, it could be demonstrated. So it then also could apply towards the same procedure involving UFOs. And that's what intrigued him. And that's why Sherry Wilde's abduction experience is so rock solid, because it's with someone short of providing the actual mugshots 
of the abductors that he came, he approached it, used, utilized that, 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 that same technique, those same techniques. And as a result, short of that, everything else demonstrates and provides a scenario that nothing else makes sense. Nothing else may apply. Daydreaming, fugue state, as far as, you know, his, her, her husband, you know, actually accused her of being gang raped and that she brought this on herself. And, you know, I was witness to all that as well. And actually was not responsible that it caused the breakup of her marriage at that time. But what was great was that there was Stan Mitchell always saying, no, what she was describing under hypnosis was no different than a criminal investigation, no different than a medical procedure that this regression was providing eyewitness testimony as she relived it in the first pe person. And just because it happens to describe a UFO experience should not disqualify it from an actual occurrence. And uh, it was just, just wonderful to be there, sad to watch what she had experienced, but nonetheless, it, it convinced me all the more that she was describing an actual firsthand experience. And um, again, rock solid case, rock solid case. They're, they're very powerful when we do get the opportunity that to see regression sessions from, uh, from experiencers. Um, I remember the first time I listened to Jim Penniston's and it was just a short clip. And I've heard for a while now that his uh, full sessions that they're planning on releasing those. And I think that's uh, a thing that people don't realize that you just don't go see somebody and you know, they pendulum swing something and you're out like you see in movies. These regression sessions do take time. And for a lot of people, they last several hours and they're repeated. It's not just you go in and find out what happened that you don't remember. It's it's way more detailed than that. And it has evolved over the years. And if I may add as a, as a, as a transcript, that had nothing to do with abductions. And mm -hmm. Grant, as we were talking a few moments ago about Jess Marcel Jr. And we, and, and Stan Mitchell at that time was, was not available. He was actually ill. Uh, he was, he, he died a young man. He was barely 50 years old and he, he died of kidney failure. And so we sought out someone of nearly, and I would say just as high qualification, just as high caliber, and that of the late Dr. John Watkins, who was a professor emeritus at the University of Montana in Missoula. He was the doctor who got the hillside strangler to confess under regression and we 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 had dr watkins take jesse marcel jr back to that late night that early morning of july 8th 1947 to the night his father woke him from a you know deep sleep took him out to the kitchen and all that wreckage that was scattered on the floor and on the kitchen table and had him relive that entire evening. And it was like professional resistance, doctor against doctor, that went on for hours. 
And then we had, uh, because we were coming off of all that work with Dr. with, with Stan Mitchell, and we took just Junior back a few years earlier, and we had him describe experiences with his dad. And he described how on one occurrence, his dad, and, and Jess Jr. was an only child, and he was so proud of his father. And his dad had him go to pick up a, a pecan pie with his bicycle. And how the, the pie fell off of his, his bicycle basket. And he wasn't, he wasn't afraid of the fact that it happened, but that he would disappoint his dad. That he so looked forward to the look on his dad's eyes when he would bring this pie home for him. And then as he's describing that, and then the death of their dog, and then, okay, the night your father takes you out into the kitchen, and then he starts to describe in the first person how his dad is saying over and over again, wreckage, pieces, debris of a flying saucer. Not once does he describe aircraft, a balloon, a plane, a rocket, over and over again. First person, flying saucer. And we did this in the company of a film crew from the NBC Today Show. You never saw this, did you? No. Because after it was finished, because it was so, again, rock solid, it was so convincing that they felt it was too controversial. And the co-host of the Today Show, then Brian Gumbel, was the one who nixed it. He said, we can't show this because it is too convincing. Wow. Just imagine that. Too convincing. Wow. Uh, quickly, Jess Jr., we never considered this. His father had just passed away just four years before. It was just four years before. And when Dr. Watkins brought him out of the trance, and we even had him sketch the symbology as he saw them, as he was examining the eye beams. Those sketches you see are from that regression as he was actually handing the pieces. And Jess is opening his eyes and he's, he's coming to. And he looks around the room and he goes, Dad? Dad? And then the tears start streaming down his face. And it's like, oh my God, we never foresaw this. He just, he's losing his dad all over again. He's realizing it, it was so real that his father, his dad was there with him, right there in that room, reliving that experience. And now his dad was once again gone. So it was like, oh, we can never do that again. So that's, again, how do you then look at the man and say, yeah, like Major McAndrew was trying to do, yeah, but I still don't believe you. You're still lying. You still saw nothing more than masking tape with, with flowers painted on it. That's the advantage that we have had all along. We've been there with these witnesses. We've seen them relive. We've listened to them describe to the point of tears and describing 
the bodies describing what they witnessed firsthand. And I'm sorry, they are either all the greatest actors in the world or they're reliving exactly what they experienced back in 1947. Mm -hmm. And I certainly have not, I don't believe, I am totally convinced of the latter. I'm convinced there's no other explanation. They were there, they are describing exactly what they saw, what they experienced. Wonderful. I agree with you too. I think it's, it's so powerful and so honest. And any experiencer that I have um, had the pleasure of hearing their testimony, it, it is a tell. It's, it, there's, with everyone, you see how hard it is for them to describe what they're going, to, going through. And there's some honesty with that. I think we can all feel that, you know, when we're in discussions with people, we know when we're being lied to or, you know, manipulated a little bit, but to move this conversation on a little bit more, um, we've, <laughs> we've touched a little bit on ufology's sort of uh, love affair with Hollywood or the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we brought up ancient aliens a little bit or some other films that, you know, get certain aspects right, but yet they get so much wrong in the dramatization of everything. And I wanted to bring up your work with uh, Mr. James Fox and his yes. movie, The Phenomenon. And he gave me kind of a tip off. He said, you might have a really good story from China that you could share with us as well. He said you oh. had a fun story from your time there. But let's talk about the film, The Phenomenon, and your, your work with that and him. Well, it's very unfortunate that the film, and it is a feature film, was slated for release now next month, September. And hi there. <laughs> and the idea that uh, everything is shut down worldwide. And we had high hopes that there would also be a release of the film in China. Tremendous audience potential. And that this was a film that, because you talk about heavy hitters, you talk about former chair of the Joint Chiefs, you talk about uh, former governors, senators, congressmen, going on the record and you know, describing how we're not being told the truth about this. We talk about Dick D'Amato a few moments ago, mm -hmm. that they are you know, risking their very careers in saying that, ladies and gentlemen, there's an actual UFO phenomenon. And we need to public demand that the government, even if it be an admission of total ignorance on the subject, they at least need to acknowledge there is a phenomenon. They need mm -hmm. to acknowledge that for 73 years, that we are still working on this. We are still you know, scrambling on these unknowns where you know, we're sending up aircraft with the hope of at least coming up with answers as to what form of, you know, what level of technology we're dealing with. Um, I know James, they've done some you know, wonderful um, recreations of the Westfall incident mm -hmm. in, in Australia. And, and, and I was over there last November just the, I, I call it the Australian Roswell 
just for the number of people who were involved. And one of the things that our documentary, which was originally named 701, and personally, I wish we would have kept that because as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the program, what's significant about the term or the, the word 701 is that that was exactly the number of unknowns, of unexplains that Blue Book finished with, 701. But, but Westfall, to, to talk with the witnesses, and again, to go to the elementary school, to go to the high school, to talk to the now teachers who were students back in 66 when that event happened, to talk to people who were out on the soccer field, children who were out on the playground and who were quickly ushered into the school because they were fearful for this object as it passes, you know, in cl close proximity of the power lines. You know, it's just 100 feet above them. And then as the object moved out, over the park and to go out to the park and see where it touched down and to see where the students even went over the fence and raced across the street and then observed it within a hundred feet before it, it ascended and lifted away. And then to ask a crucial question. And it's one of the things that the Fox movie is going to demonstrate over and over again, whether it's Australia, whether it's, uh, uh, China, whether it's Russia, whether it's uh, Zimbabwe in Africa, whether it's Brazil in South America. When asked, were there American suits present? And that's the, 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 the one question that I always ask in dealing with a foreign report. Were there American suits? And what I hear was well, a matter of fact, like Westfall, yes, we were questioned by American investigators. I mean, we were told to shut up. We were told not to ever, you know, mention anything about this again by Americans. Well, why are we in the driver's seat? Why are, you know, Americans the ones that are calling the shots on this on an international level? And I always, again, harken back to Roswell. Well, the one thing that placed America in the driver's seat was Roswell that we gained possession of actual hardware. We had one that we could always place on the bargaining table, so to speak, regarding foreign affairs. Well, you better play hardball with us because, you know, we have one. We're developing the technology. You know, we're reverse engineering what we found back in 1947, so you better play good with us, that type of thing. And I personally believe that much of foreign aid on our regard is, is hush money. That you cooperate with us, we will pay you for it. We will provide you with uh, foreign aid, so to speak. So it, it all gets back to what may have happened back in 47. So much of this is going to be portrayed in, in this movie. And like everyone, also in Hollywood that is waiting for the theaters to be reopened and to uh, once again, this film needs to be seen in the theaters. I, I, I would hate to think that it's just going to re, you know, be you know, delegated once again to so many other documentaries on the TV screen because for especially James, 
This has been such a labor of love. I mean, my God, he's worked on this now for, I believe, over seven years. And um, it, I think uh, it's even longer than that. I think it's it's past the decade mark, or it's close. It's overall, and 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 much of it involves the original involvement of, of, of again screenwriter Tracy Torme, mm -hmm. because when I would sit down with Tracy, and every time I would be on Hollywood, and I would bring bring up to him, I'd go, Tracy, you know, if if Michael Moore can do it, and if Al Gore can do it. We certainly can do it. You know, enough of this made for TV, you know, document, you know, a documentary. We need to hit the big screen. We can't rely on the cable networks. We can't rely on Peter Jennings, you know, his primetime ABC special on UFOs, which I was also involved with. And I knew it was going to be nothing more than a hatchet job. I knew it. So we got to take our case to the people, to the public ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where, when, when Tracy originally sat down with James, okay, let's do a feature. Let's yes. you know, take it to the big screen. And so that's it's just now a case of, of, you know, waiting for the theaters to be reopened. And uh, we'll, we'll find uh, our ourselves with a premiere and air dates. And, yes, uh, we're all anxiously waiting. I know... Um, James was kind enough to give me a sneak peek on it months and months ago. And it's been so, I mean, it's been terrible because now in our current uh, climate with ufology and with it making the news and all the fun that's happening right now, I just want to be able to go watch the phenomenon. It's, it's the history we've all been waiting for laid out cinematically. The sound on it is fabulous. And this is a special time in ufology and it helps put some pieces together for people that, that need educated or re-educated in our field or more importantly, those outside of our field that are new and are just now interested in this or have decided that after years of blowing it off, oh, it's like, oh, here, now it's not just the weather balloon. We have to look at this seriously again. And so it's so great that this film is coming out and it's so moving. I, I actually wept at two parts in the film. Oh. The, the letters to Lonnie Zamora, yeah. the, reading, the readings of those, it was just powerful. And to hear in some detail the repercussions of telling his story. And he's such a great witness. And we talk about these perfect witnesses. And just and that was many, very moving. And then, of course, seeing Stanton Friedman's dedication at the end of it was really moving for me. It was, you know. And you know where the interview with, with, with Stanton even took place was down in Brazil. Mm. of all places because uh, there were a number of us who uh, were in Brazil at the time and uh, James you know should we talk to Stanton and it's like well how can we not talk to Stanton <laughs> and uh, so of all places but um, I know it's one of the reasons our our book that came out last year on right path Actually, it was the revised edition of the Right Path book. And, and Staten, it was the last 
a forward that he wrote. And then we dedicated the book to him as well. And so, so much of this, we had hoped that Stan would have had time mm -hmm. to actually experience that he would have had some vindication that he himself would have, would have been able to experience some finality that there would have been some closure even if it would have been at least accepting or realizing that it was finally happening mm -hmm. that we were at the crossroads of where all we have to do is keep pushing that the general public will finally say enough of the subterfuge, enough of this level of security and secrecy that too many have taken to their graves. Right. That we're the government. We're supposed to be calling the shots. We're supposed to, you know, have total transparency as to what our governments are allocating, you know, budgets, black budgets, even if that be the case, but we're still paying for it. You know, our taxes still pay for such technology, for such investigations. And the very thought that you're still claiming something was a weather balloon after 73 years, I'm sorry, you're insulting not only all of our intelligence, but you're clearly covering something up. Yeah. Even if it's our own technology, we deserve to know the truth. And, and Stan was, you know, one of the champions one of the people who led the charge. And, uh, and, and sadly, he uh, is missing much of this. Now, that's why I, I'm so proud of so many of my colleagues who are not resting on their laurels right now, that, that once this all reopens, that we're gonna get, once again, we're gonna hit as far as the payment with both legs running. Mm -hmm. We're just not going to very, you know, cautiously and incrementally pick, pick up where we left off. We're ready. And one of them certainly being uh, the James Fox movie. And I know there's another new series on uh, the History Channel will be coming out this fall. And uh, many other elements. And hopefully even the Navy that there will be forthcoming disclosures that this isn't just going to be an occasional carrot that tantalizes us with possibilities as to are we going to have disclosure in our lifetimes or are we always going to revert back to yes, but uh, there's nothing to disclose. Well, we know there's 73 years of accumulated data, of accumulated information. I mean, Grant is certainly aware of the fact that when Blue Book was declassified, it mentions over 20 gun camera cases alone. Now, not a single frame of footage, certainly none of the actual gun camera film. So just like the film, like the footage from the Nimitz, wouldn't we love to see that in conjunction with what uh, Fravor and the other pilots observed, you know, back in 2004 and 2005. So there is still so much raw information for the government to still hoard this material. There are many of us 
that have a much greater education on the subject. That's one of the reasons that I'd like to believe that that's why they're now consulting with us. They're now, well, what can you tell us about Roswell? What can you tell us about other military situations? What can you tell us about these other witnesses? Because then we can plug in that data and it will further solidify these cases as being tr truly and genuinely off the earth events that well, leave, you know, no other explanation. Let's continue, let's continue the disclosure talk a little bit, but Grant, did you have a question you wanted to ask? Yeah, well, you, brought up, you brought up Stanton Friedman. I, uh, you may know I'm, uh, I've got access to the Stanton Friedman yes. collection. Yes. And we got 6,000 pages and, and Nicole is gonna help me analyze some of this material. I'm going back once the, um, the COVID thing is over. Um, they predict it's gonna be four years to go through the collection. Yeah. And I can actually give you access with a click of a mouse. I can give you access to the files. If you were gonna look at Stanton's material, is there anything I should be looking for? Like you yeah, knew him in, in terms of stuff that he may have talked about. Uh, like I looked at the one with the Cuban missile, the Cuban, uh, where the Cuban jet gets shot down. I, I knew Stan had worked on that case. Was that 66? Yeah, and I found the file and I found out the guy he was talking to. So if you can give me sort of an insight, of, if you were gonna look at the Stanton files, what kind of things do you know that he was working on that he was sort of keeping to himself that we might be looking for? And would you want access to the files? I can give you, I can give you access to the files as we recover them. They're kind Absolutely. of like you gotta go through them, you know, page by page. It's a long, oh, you know, and thing. As they probably described to you, because originally Stan was sending, we first were going through his library, his books, and then we have a good number of his videotapes, his, his, his CDs, DVDs, that type of thing, at, at our museum at Roswell. And then uh, a month before he, uh, you know, unfortunately passed away, which was a shock to all of us because uh, he had already, as you both remember, had announced his retirement. And we had a retirement uh, uh, celebration at the festival in Roswell just the year before. And then when he announced that, well, no, he had his doctor's approval to once again go on the road, he was doing more lectures, and he was gonna be at that next year's festival. And we had high hopes that there was gonna be a continuation of providing more and more of his material, his files, to the museum in Roswell. And then I think he became concerned that we were going to investigate his material, that we were going to actually follow up on specifically his Roswell files, because we always had a standing agreement with Stan. Should we find anything that corroborates, you know, your scenario, your theories on Roswell? You'll be the first Stan. And uh, should you find any witnesses that, you know, corroborate, you know, our position? We then expect the same from you. So this this was this two-way exchange that in, in many respects was more one-sided because I think Stan was so focusing on the Plains of St. Augustine and Gerald Anderson at that time that uh, he, he wasn't, you know, looking into anything, you know, closer to Roswell where we were focusing. So, and I think it's Joanne 
I, I think of her last name. She's the, the head archivist at uh, the, the new, uh, new uh, the, the Fredericton, New Brunswick uh, archives there. And um, I remember when they were first picking up all the material and she was talking about how many van loads of material and that none of the material was collated. Nothing of it was chronological. There was no such thing as a 1947 drawer. 1966 drawer. Yeah, there she, wasn't a, she described it to me the way she described it. Stan was more of a stacker than a filer. A collector, a stacker, exactly, exactly. And so, and initially, when their people, their archivists were going through the material, that's why it's wonderful, Grant, that uh, and you and anyone else that can assist her, assist them, because she was telling me too that they, they could foresee this taking four to five years overall. Yeah. And so the one thing specifically is anything concerning Roswell, because Stan had a, a 10 year jump in advantage on us. So there were witnesses he was speaking to that were gone by the time we became involved and nobody was lecturing, nobody was more publicly in the forefront, in the public as Stanton was. And as a result, I'm sure there were people that he hopefully took down names, contact numbers, that type of thing. So I don't want to, again, spread ourselves into other areas. I'll leave that to you, Grant, and others that you may feel can assist. But specifically, anything pertaining to Roswell, anything pertaining to a potential Roswell lead, family, secondhand, third hand that uh, you can you could pass on to us that then we can follow up on um, it may be quite fascinating that we may have witnesses that corroborate these witnesses that yeah. Stan you know wasn't even aware of and we would then have the wherewithal we would make it a point to follow up and, and we would always come back to you and Grant and say, well, you know, we checked out a particular lead that Stan had from uh, 1983. And we followed up. The party was now passed away, but the family was able to provide us with, you know, a little secondhand information. And so it will keep things going. Yeah. And uh, certainly all credit to Stan and yourself, Grant, for you know, wading through all this material because of all the time archive research uh, certainly does take, but then allow us to actually once again go into the field and, and follow up. So specifically Roswell-related information grant. So if you could do that, we would be forever grateful. Yeah, the only problem with it is it's it's like as you said, there was really no files. It's sort of all mixed together. One of the things that was kind of interesting that they told me, and I'm waiting, they have an, uh, an audiovisual archives. What they told me is he taped a lot of his phone calls, which yes, I don't know did. if anybody knew. So he would have a lot of phone calls, like this Cuban case, where it's evident there's gonna be a phone call conversation with this guy, and they haven't gone through it. The other thing was, it's kind of weird, where you see archivist people who have no clue. Like they said, when they did the, the collection, they got a lot of uh, uh, blowback from people around, it was like, what are you doing? 
like this is on like a provincial archives that looks at death certificates, property and stuff like that. And like, why are you looking at this guy's files? He wasn't even, he wasn't even a Canadian. So why are you doing this? But he was so famous there that she did it. So you consider they've got, I think four archivists working for five years. That's a lot of money oh. they're throwing at this thing. So she had to sell this thing, but they have no idea. So she asked me for, can you give me a list of topics and stuff? So I would mention all the different skeptics and stuff. Right. She said like Phil Klaus, she said, Oh yeah, we know about that guy already. Because they have no idea whatsoever about anything. They haven't got a clue. So they actually had the one thing. There's actually a Roswell piece. Someone sent him a Roswell piece. Yes. They yes. just had it attached to a piece of paper. And I said to them, I said, You gotta you gotta cover this thing. You you, you somebody's gotta walk off of this piece. And it looked like Stan had never analyzed it. He had received it in an, in an envelope. And uh, so they've got it sort of under lock and key. I think they've got six pieces that in order to look at these things that Stan had, you need an archivist to be with you when you look at the material. But they had no idea. They just had put this thing in the, in the file. And when I saw that, I said, you better hide this thing. And that's why it's, it's like a gold mine. It's like going through King Tut's tomb and looking for stuff that Stan maybe had talked about to people, but he never made public. It, it's quite fascinating. So I will, as much as I can, send you material that, that might help you Please, by all means. And how, how close are you to his uh, residence? Well, I'm pretty far. It's it's uh, it's I'm halfway across the country. But, but once uh, you would go to the archives, how close would you you then be? Well, when I go to the archives, I go there for like two weeks. I get a uh, uh, an Airbnb, and then I just go to the archives every day. So I got six thousand pages the first time, right. and this time I'll probably pick up whatever they've got, maybe maybe 15,000 pages the second time. And I just, I don't really read it. I just, cause it's, you got to move so fast. So I yeah. just take a camera and I photograph as fast as I can photograph and you can read it when you get home. So that's basically what I'm doing is I'm going through the files as quickly as I can. Cause it's massive. As you know, it's 15 pallet, pallet yes. uh, of things of, of files. It was the entire basement. Basement and the garage, half the garage. Yeah. So. yeah. And but his I'm... wife never went down there. So it's a massive, massive collection it will take years. But I'm sure we're going to find something in there that stands, like, you know, you, you're a researcher, I'm a researcher. You can't follow every single lead. There's just too much material. And there's going to be something in there where you'll click on it and you'll go, oh, he knew about this. And right. you'll get a piece right. of document that, that nobody's ever seen before and that he just didn't have time to follow up on. What I was going to also suggest next time you are in Fredericton yeah. is to, if you have the time, Go to the residence. Yeah. And what I suggest to Joanne at the archives is that if they had the time, if they had someone, that once everything was cleared out, assume that Stan may have had a hiding place, something yeah. else behind a heat register, uh, loose floorboards, anywhere else behind a file cabinet yeah. that he may have uh, stashed, he may have hidden some things that, uh, because Heineck, for example, he had things hidden under drawers, under file cabinets. Wow. And um, so we, yeah. we, we need to at least consider the man. Yeah. And the fact that we're, we're working on something that for in many elements of it are rather clandestine. And as a result, we should again look under every rock. And the so only problem with that is I think they've sold the house. I think the wife has moved and sold the house. Okay, as okay. 
you're selling the house, but but she may have done it. I'll have to ask her. You, you the problem should. with it now is we have to wait for the archives to open. Like you can't go in there because of the COVID thing. Right. So they may be still filing material in in the in the the background. Uh, but it's a it's just a massive collection, right. and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that you might be interested. In. So I'll give you access to whatever I can and try to isolate the Roswell material as much as I can because because there's piles of stuff. But as you know, it's just like he's just all this stuff is sorted and it's not in files and and the ones that they've got so far actually were in the filing cabinet the rest of it apparently was stacked as high as the ceiling just That's in right. stacks of paper and you know these type of people they can actually tell you where in the stack of paper the document is but they, they just went in and she just looked at him and she said stan like could, could you well, you couldn't have filed this stuff he said i didn't have an assistant you know i didn't have an assistant <laughs> so and in his case, you're talking over 50 years of accumulated material. Yeah, massive. And massive. So thank God, and hopefully once things reopen, yeah. that you're going to be able to uh, make a dent into it. But uh, again, I think you know better than I, it's going to take years. Okay, Nicole, go ahead. I, I was going to say, it's uh, if you mentioned the residents changed hands now, that might be the ideal time to make contact with the new owners, though, because I know um, my family renovates and flips houses, and we, we often do uh, old rehabilitation on houses, and you always find interesting treasures if you know what you're looking for, or if you just, you're a hobbyist for some things, but there are so many people that just find stuff, Don, like you mentioned, in floorboards or up in rafters or in the attic crawl space, and they're like, oh, here's somebody else's junk, and in the dumpster it goes. So, I mean, I don't know if the new owners know anything like that, but about Stanton and his importance in our field, but they might, it might just be a phone call of, hey, if you find something you think is junk, don't throw it out, throw it in a box for me, so. I mean, we will all agree that he took the subject so serious that above everything else, he saved everything. He didn't toss, and as a result, I like to believe that at times he was very discriminating and that he would segregate certain things that he felt were a little more sensitive. And as a result, he again may have placed them elsewhere and so at least we should keep that in our mind interesting so now let's discuss disclosure a little bit and your thoughts on our current climate here but i'll segue a little bit with our our little chat on the phenomenon there were two very interesting people that were interviewed um at least in my opinion, that are directly related to right now, and that is uh, former Senator Harry Reid and John Podesta. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if uh, you could give us your thoughts on those two players, our current climate of disclosure, and maybe throw in a little thoughts on TTSA. Well, we know that uh, the former Senator Harry Reid was very in influential in even getting the funding put up as far as uh, the special UFO project at the Pentagon at the time when those of us within the field felt that they had washed their hands of the subject. And I mean, you know, personally, we always knew they were still 
investigating the phenomena post-Project Blue Book. Even Heineck was involved for four years after Blue Book. And, uh, and then another example, he saved the documentation that he had hidden for us to discover, you know, after, I mean, posthumously. And his job description was that he was a consultant on controversial aerial phenomena. Well, what else is that? <laughs> Except, I mean, I have colleagues that say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean UFOs. Well, I'm sorry, you know, it's, you, you people are of the anything but extraterrestrial crowd. That everything, you know, always will come just, just to the brink. But sorry, you know, we have to cross that line if there's nothing else. If every other possibility, like the old Sherlock Holmes axiom, when you've eliminated all the possible and you're only faced to accept the impossible, you have to accept the impossible. And if you still want to believe extraterrestrial falls in that category, that's more of a hang up on your part not ours, and certainly not the phenomena, because the, the phenomena continues to demonstrate off the world technology. Mm -hmm. you start, when you continue to talk about, uh, uh, as, far, as far as flight characteristics that defy the laws of physics, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we may be on the brink, but I'm so, there's nothing that we have in our arsenal right now. Maybe we're, we're, they're going to spring this on us in a year or two. And ladies and gentlemen, we finally have anti-gravity. You know, we have technology. I, I belong to the EAA. And, uh, you know, we have the annual uh, air show up in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And I'm there for two, three days every, every uh, uh, air show. And I never forget when they unveil the F-35, the Raptor. And the watch as far as that fighter approach and then as far as at high speed, all at once tip its nose up and then just sit there bobbing up and down on its thrusters as it is hovering. And all at once it kicks in its afterburners and it just shoots straight up like a rocket, 10,000 feet within a matter of seconds. So yes, we're getting there. But my God, it shook the ground. I mean, the, the sound of it, you know, clearly demonstrated that, yeah, we are getting there, but our technology is still very Earth-like in that it's still dealing with jet propulsion. It's still dealing with jet rocket propulsion that goes back, it harkens back to the 1940s. It lets you know it's still earthly Technology, it's of earthly design. And UFOs are too often described as being totally silent. They don't even create air turbulence. They don't even affect as far as, I mean, you don't even track them on radar at times. So yes, we have stealth technology, but you still have a small signal. And yet this is something that, uh, again, it breaks the rules. And I think as a result, we're still trying to come up. We're still trying to find the on button if we have one in our possession. As with Roswell, I, as I said before, I'm convinced we, we do, we have. But is it a case of, again, slowly conditioning the masses, conditioning the general public to accept the inevitable? Or is it dangling that carrot and then once again reeling us back in 
because, ladies and gentlemen, this is something that we went through at Heineck on a number of occasions, that he would be whisked down to, you know, WGN in Chicago, that there was going to be an announcement that Washington had tipped them off. I mean, I was there on one of those occasions, and Heineck's excitement that Washington says they might say something tonight, and they want me there to present my response, my reaction, and to see his disappointment. And even after a Heineck passed away, we had the same situation, that Kufos was tipped off, that we should all be ready to make our way to Washington, that there was going to be an announcement. And we were strung along for weeks, and then a couple months, and then how it all fell apart. So this may seem like virgin territory, but it's not. There are a few of us oldsters who have been through this before. But the difference is, it's now a branch of the military that is dangling the carrot. It's a, it's a, a senior senator who is involved. It's a, a current senator in the guise of Marco Rubio who is involved and is saying, I want a report by next year. And a report that then will be sent to Congress from the Pentagon, and then with the proviso that it will also be released to the public. The stakes are certainly raised. We've never been here before, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you're pointing that out because that's we've had several discussion panels on disclosure and and that's something that we we've tried to discuss um against some skeptics that just say oh been there done that this is a repeat we've seen it all with blue book and the condon report and we're going to see it again here in this situation so it's it's nice to hear you say that the playbook has changed you know or at least maybe some of the rules of the disclosure game have well, I mean, even the attempt, like with uh, the commander Fravor, who was head of the squadron mm -hmm. off of the limits, and uh, for the the likes of uh, like Seth Saltek to suggest that, well, he may be highly trained, you know, as a pilot, but he's not trained to observe alien aircraft. Well, how? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. There again, the process of elimination. What greater witness who is trained in observing earthly technology, earthly aircraft? Certainly better than you, Dr. Salchak. So the point being, if he says it wasn't anything made here, if he says that the maneuverability, the flight characteristics were like nothing that any earthbound aircraft would possess, I think he then is in a very good position to then say the only thing left, the only thing that would still qualify would be something manufactured off the planet. I mean, Dr. Solchak, you're looking for, you know, radio waves that uh, are just fluttering about out in deep space. And the very idea that somebody of an advanced technology would still be using radio waves. So you have lifetime employment and clearly UFOs are a threat to your meal steak. 
I mean, you're the one who's getting all the grant uh, funding as far as your pet project were not. So you're again, just like we were talking earlier about MUFON and UFO investigators protecting their territory, protecting their turf. Sorry, that's all you're dealing with. That's the only thing that you are, are, are you know, actually representing. You're protecting your grants, your special funding, and uh, you really have nothing to provide to the argument. That is interesting. I, I know we hear often when we're talking about disclosure, it's you can get so far and with these special access programs, it comes down to don't messing with the money. And, you know, that's uh, one thing that's interesting. I think it's a double-edged sword with what we're seeing now with breakthroughs in technology that are in the public sector now. And we see these um, the videos come out from the Navy, of course, and now Rubio, like you said, he's at the forefront of gathering this data, but it's, it's interesting that the Navy is throwing in its hat. They are very, um, very much at the forefront of pushing R&D and technology. And keeping in mind, we, as we've talked about mentioning the declassification of Project Blue Book, when those files were released, 98% of the files were Air Force cases. Mm -hmm. Where were all the Navy cases? Where were all the Army cases, the other branches of the military? Didn't the Navy have their own UFO investigation? Didn't the Army? I mean, my God, Roswell was an Army incident. Mm -hmm. It was not under the purview of the Air Force. The Air Force didn't exist in 1947, July 47. So for the Air, for Air Force to still step to the fore and say, well, you know, we declassified all the cases. Yeah, you declassified some of your own case investigations. Mm -hmm. And under what jurisdiction would you have even released Navy or other other branches? You wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's a case also, as I suggested, that the Navy is getting tired of allowing the Air Force to speak for them. Right. Because as I have often, you know, even publicly stated, as far as I'm concerned, the best pilots in the military are Navy. Mm -hmm. They certainly have the greatest uh, coverage of the planet as we know it. I mean, the Air Force is strictly within sovereign airspace, whereas the Navy, you know, throughout every you know, ocean <laughs> and through every sea throughout the world, you know, has much greater surveillance of the, of the earth as we, as we would expect them to. So what I'm also very keen on and interested in is the fact that now you have uh, members, elements of, 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 of Washington that have described that there have been numerous briefings of Congress on UFOs for over 10 years. Well, what are you briefing them on? Ignorance? Lack of information. What are you actually telling them? So there too, mm -hmm. uh, there's a there, there. And so we like to know, I mean, the public needs to know that there is some pay dirt, that there are other gun camera cases. There are other uh, profound cases within the Navy, within other branches, beyond the Air Force, because 
uh, if the Air Force comes out with anything right now, you are up to four explanations regarding Roswell. So why should anybody give you the time of day? Because you've been deceiving and lying about UFOs for 73 years. Mm -hmm. So you just now have a change of heart? No. But the Navy can come out and say, well, we've never put out any reports. We've never acknowledged anything heretofore. But this is what we know. This is what right. we have discovered in our own files. And there's other gun camera footage. And there are other yeah. cases that were investigated outside of the Air Force purview. And this is what we concluded. This is what answers that we arrived at. And we are clearly dealing with someone else's aircraft. Mm -hmm. And that's the beginning of hopefully a joint effort as to not a Condon report where they rely on, you know, strictly the Air Force and the civilian groups like NICAP and APRO provided uh, tons of investigative reports that they never looked at. The sad thing is the reports, the information, the data was there and Condon and his committee never even looked at them because they were not assigned to look at them. They had a pre, again, a predetermined right. explanation and preconceived ex, uh, as far as solution as they were assigned to report. And uh, let's hope that the Navy this time around will actually come out with more of the truth and less speculation as to the reality of the phenomenon. Well, and that's that brings up an interesting thing with uh, what folks are saying about the Army collaborating with TTSA as well. You know, this isn't just, again, the Air Force. And I don't know, I guess, I guess the hitch with the Air Force is we've always heard these conspiracy stories or scary stories coming out of, you know, the Office of Special Investigations. It's like, seems like you hear these guys popping up and silencing people or guiding, you know, what should be said publicly. And I don't know, do you, do you think there's uh, agents like that still at play right now, even though they said, uh, you know, investigations haven't been happening, you know, since Blue Book closed or since ATIP supposedly quit, you know, we always hear these excuses but we know they never end and one another thing rubio i think in his information request you know he's even requesting files from the fbi that's correct so we'll see you know homeland you know in our border investigations as well as maybe some you know i guess not just military involved investigations we'll see some from the general population which in the late 1970s when uh, citizens for ufo secrecy as represented by new york attorney peter gersten at that time and they specifically went after air force intelligence the fbi the cia and uh, there was a bounty of material that clearly demonstrated especially with the fbi that they were long looking into domestic UFO cases. And then with the CIA demonstrating, even on a global level, 
And I never will forget that there were, I believe, like 50-some, the number 57 stands out. 57 cases that the CIA would not release. And there were three judges that met behind closed doors for three days. And then their decision, which read that the public's need to know was outweighed by national security demonstrating that at least within those CIA UFO cases that national security was still of the utmost uh, priority, the utmost concern. And so we need to be concerned that that once again, that may be the final resolution or at least the final roadblock that may still prevent disclosure as we would define it, mm -hmm. that they would just throw up the national security banner and say, we, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we'd love to, but, you know, we would be revealing, you know, uh, agents in the field and, and, and lookout posts and people who are actually working as far as in the foreign theater. And uh, there's too much overlapping as far as UFO investigations with on, uh, uh, other assignments that just happen to involve UFO uh, incidents. So as a result, uh, we're going to have to once again restrict access. So we have to know our history. Mm -hmm. And for those who are saying we have been there before, yes, I, I can demonstrate that. We have been. And so, but where I believe they have once again, they've raised the ante, they've raised the bar, is by acknowledging that we may be dealing with physical evidence. We may be dealing with actual crash retrieval material. And then who else? I mean, I'm going to be the first one who's going to say, well, what else are we potentially talking about? But Roswell. Yeah. Then you throw in the situation, and, and Grant knows this better than anyone about the presidents. And no one has done, you know, a greater service to the study of UFOs and the presidents and other political figures than Grant Cameron has. And I'm sure he now has added the Father's Day interview of Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> With the president of the United States, his father, in asking about Roswell. And we both know, and Grant would be able to corroborate this, that there is no doubt that the president knew that that question was going to be asked. In right. fact, I'm sure he approved of the question in advance. And there wasn't a tacit dismissal that, oh, it they tell me it was just some type of Russian spy balloon or it was, you know, something prosaic, something conventional of that sort. He too, he opened the door yeah. to, as we know, much more that I'm asked that question more than anything else. And millions of people know that something very, ha very important happened in Roswell and that they, they, Go to Roswell to be where it actually happened. But Dan, are you still going to ever announce? Well, I'll have to think about it. So there's a there, 
there. There's something yeah. to announce. So are we talking about a fifth explanation or are we talking about, well, it was the first one. It was as the witnesses, all of the eyewitnesses to their deathbeds testified to. Mm -hmm. It was an actual craft mm -hmm. of unknown origin. It was something that was not made. He said an interesting it, if I'm remembering the broadcast correctly. And that's what I duly noted was the, the it. <laughs> yes. But it, it was very exciting. And yeah, we have been discussing that often in our disclosure discussions and panels. And that was one question. I There have been some of these spinoff interviews. Politicians, politicians slash government employees slash military do everything for effect. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that they do. They seldom do anything that they can honestly say, I did it only for the public. I right. did it as far as the people. We did it strictly for even to my political or my military detriment. We did it for the masses. No. And that's where we also have to step back. Why is the Navy doing this right now? For whose benefit? It's not going to be for ours. It's going to be for the Navy's, first of all. And they all compete. Each branch of the military competes with one another. And so that's where I personally see it more as a jab in the eye of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. you're, not, you're no longer going to speak for us. And if we can demonstrate that there's a threat, that there is something that we need to be on alert to, as far as to monitor, to watch for. Mm -hmm. And we need a little bit more money from Congress. So we get a little more than the Air Force as a result because we're monitoring more of the global skies. And then you throw in the Space Command with that. Right. Certainly the Navy is part of. So I think we, we, we then need to accept that it may be nothing more that we're potentially dealing with something that may be invading our airspace. It may be someone else's but it also may be someone else's out there and as a result we need to be, be more vigilant we need to be more watchful and we need more money don't give it to the air force give it to the navy so we also have to be uh very uh accepting of the fact that it may it may be simply that in the long run I agree with you there. And it will be interesting to see what the, the months ahead bring. I know we're going to the election. Yes, after the election. And then we're looking at that, uh, the countdown from the 180 days for yes. Marco Rubio. We're Rubio. Exactly. February, March, maybe we'll know something by April. I know it's it's this is the most exciting times in ufology I've been in. in 20 years, also, 25 years. As Rolling Stone magazine in the, the current article. Yes. And 
Newsweek magazine had an article, and there will be others. Mm -hmm. The press continues to demonstrate their total naivety on the subject. To them, it's just so much silly season. Right. That it will, and politics aside, it will not even matter if the president or if the pope or if Walter Cronkite were still alive and they were to go public and say, ladies and gentlemen, there are aircraft manufactured off the planet that are invading our airspace with total impunity. We don't know where they're from, who they are, and what their agenda is. But vote for me, you know, come next election, that type of thing. Half the people still won't believe it. Right. And most of them would still be depressed because their fallback is going to be, well, certainly if it's all true, certainly if it's all happening, we would have been the ones to discover it. We right. would have been the ones to, you know, unveil this to the public because, you know, we're the investigators, we're the watchdogs at the gate. No, you aren't. You, are, you know, you have an agenda as well. And, and much of it is just to stay in lockstep with Washington, to do as you're told. As I've often said, uh, much of the, you know, the media has become like professional wrestling. It's all scripted. <laughs> and UFOs remains a taboo topic. It's a career breaker, especially for the media. And that's where ufology needs to come together, work together, and not let this opportunity slip past us that yes. when it comes to Rubio's commission, his committee, when it comes to even the president, especially if Donald Trump should get reelected, well, you made comments about Roswell. We yeah. want a follow-up. What can you tell us? At least if you can tell us, I can't talk about it. It's still, you know, up here, it's still classified beyond <clears throat> even the office of the president. That will tell us everything. That will tell us that it is still so important that mm -hmm. even the president can't discuss it. And for us, that will still be mission accomplished. We're going right. in the right direction. I, I would definitely say that would be a mark in the wind column. You know, there's, it's so rare that we get to give, a, give ourselves a mark as a win. Like we just do have to take what we get. And there are, there are advantages to both sides, you know, after this election. If it's Biden, then here, I'll kick it to our disclosure talk with Steve Bassett. He can lay out his thoughts from the democratic point of view so exquisitely. And I can see it happening, but then you're also right. If Trump does win this reelection, it is up to us in this field to keep pushing that needle on the comments that he's made. And I don't know, we all like Twitter and we all know plenty of people on Twitter and social media, but that, that is, that door is opened. They discuss this on Twitter and social media. So we can also do it back. We can say, hey, give us an update on Roswell Jr. Ask your dad again. <laughs> and believe me, we are following up on that with mm -hmm. Donald Jr. When, the, uh, when Bill Clinton was president and uh, during the Monica Lewinsky investigation, and when the grand jury had subpoenaed 
that book that she had gifted him for Christmas. And when it was retrieved from his private study, it was sandwiched between two books. One was a book on Winston Churchill, and the other was an autographed copy to the President of the United States, A Beautiful Crash at Roswell, co-authored by Kevin D. Randall and yours truly. Yep. When our book Witness to Roswell came out, a personal copy autographed to the President was handed to him at that time. When George W. Bush came to Roswell and the mayor's office contacted me the day before, we want to include in a gift basket an autographed copy of one of your books. Can you overnight something? So I know he has a personal copy yeah. and I can throw into the mix his former press secretary, Dana Perino from Fox News. And after she has brought up Roswell a number of times, and one of her colleagues at Fox said, well, did you ever ask your boss? To which she responded, well, as a matter of fact, in the Oval Office, I asked him, Mr. President, what can you tell me about Roswell? And from behind his desk, he smiled and then he winked at me. <laughs> that was it. Again, it speaks volumes. Right. It and does. so I, I, I'm sorry, it's like, and I say this, and I would say it to any one of you who are right here in front of me, because you're great at always speaking, you know, behind my back. <laughs> but the point is, they're the ones who started this back in 1947. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who claim it was a flying saucer. I didn't. They did. I was a total skeptic when I came into this. I thought we'd make a single trip down to New Mexico in February of 1989 and we'd wrap this up in a single weekend, you know, prove that this was nothing more than, you know, a balloon or anything else just as conventional. And then you start speaking to the first 10 witnesses and one by one, they're all describing the exact same wreckage, one by one. And you realize, my God, we can't get down here fast enough because we got to find more and more to see if the pattern continues and they're all describing something of an unearthly nature. The point again being they started it. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, they can either end it because they're up to now four official that hasn't ended it because to their deathbeds, the eyewitnesses continued to proclaim to the rest of the world, it was the first one that was the correct one, that it was indeed an actual flying saucer. Right, and I'm hopeful. I think in our current climate, I, I have been asking this to everybody I interview about disclosure, and I agree. I think this is gonna give us Roswell. I think this is gonna be the give, you know, even if, if they wanna keep some stuff secret, which we know they're going, going to, and keep it hidden under national security reasons. We know that, but give us Roswell, the time is now, we'll be happy with that. We can go forward from there. And yeah, that's my hope for the future. I'm glad I can kind of share in that with you, but. 
we're right at two and a half hours, Don, and this has gone by so (laughs) quickly. So, (laughs) um, I don't know what happened to Grant. He kind of disappeared. I didn't know if he was on mute. (laughs) (laughs) He ran out of gas, right? (laughs) You never know. He might, he might've had an emergency come up. So he he lets me hijack the interviews often. (laughs) (laughs) He left me with Melinda Leslie and an hour passed by and he just kind of snuck back in. (laughs) So (laughs) these things can go quickly, but I think we've, we've had a really good conversation here and I I would love to have you back um, as the current situation unfolds. So maybe it will unfold. It it is. I agree. Again, we're going to keep it. We're going to keep the pressure on Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and too often, as we were describing in the past, we, uh, we rely on and those who have less than our best interests at stake. Mm-hmm. And we want this to end. I have long said, I, I, I want to put this one to bed to then get on to something much more, you know, simple as cancer research <laughs> or uh, being the first, you know, uh, the man mission to Mars, that type of thing. Because uh, the solution to the UFO phenomena should not have taken us 73 years. I mean, we're actually dealing with an actual phenomenon, or we've had 73 years of people hallucinating, even handling uh, wreckage and remains from a crash. But we know that's not the case. So here now, collectively, we need to work with our elected officials. We need to continue the pressure. And, And I agree. If, if we don't succeed this time, then much of it will be our fault. Then mm-hmm. we will also be then responsible. And I think with James Fox's film and uh, the History Channel continue to work on this, are continuing as far as uh, to work on Roswell, and Grant, you know, working with Stanton Friedman's archives and coming up with new Roswell leads that we can follow up on, uh, uh, Marco Rubio's uh, committee, and uh, that report and then the Navy because they have to continue releasing more information because if it was to entice the Air Force to come clean, no, I'm sorry, the Air Force, they could care less because they wrote the book on on this Mm cover-up. They were the ones who uh, initiated the cover-up. They were the ones who created the ridicule factor on the subject. That could be documented. Mm-hmm. And the idea that after now over 70 years, they have a chapter in their handbook. Well, today is when we're going to pull open the curtain behind the wizard and it's all going to come, you know, forward. No, no. The Navy has this opportunity and let's help them, you know, grease the skids and hopefully, you know, we'll all be there at the finish line when it comes out. Yeah. I, I like to close uh, and, and, and at least add one caveat. And that was the former director of the CIA, Ellen Dulles, who was a contemptible, corrupt individual. Uh, Ellen Dulles was the one who made the comment that whenever he and all of his officials at the CIA would meet together in one room, that they were confident that Satan the devil also was sitting in the same room. 
So that's, you know, that's you know, really quite, uh, you know, contemptible when you think about it. But he was the one who made the comment, and I'll quote him, quote, if you want to keep a secret, then pretend to share it. Mm -hmm. So they're the masters at this. So we also need to be prepared that even though it appears they may be for the first time as far as at a military level preparing to disclose, it may be just to nail down the lid even harder. Mm -hmm. And we walk away once again with nothing. We also need to be prepared for that. Yep, I think I, it's one of those hope for the best, prepare for the worst scenarios. Yes, yes. And, yes, yes. you know, in preparing for the worst, you, you can see how there could be another 70-year battle ahead of us. Oh, so, I know, I know. It's, it's sad. They'll give us Roswell, and then we'll have to fight 70 years for maybe Rendlesham or Nimitz. So. I don't know if I still have the energy after 70 more years. <laughs> You'll pick who you're going to pass your torch to now. <laughs> Start grooming them for the for the battle to come. Oh no, I'm. I want it to be now. I want it to be tomorrow. I, I want it to be next month, next year. Well, and, you know, uh, yeah. we we did just celebrate a um, hundred years since the suffragette movement, and yes, that was also. Yes. That was also a long fought battle that didn't just end or didn't just happen overnight either. So I think it, it's a test of our fortitude and our stamina for answers and our passion in the because, field. Our passion because if we are as convinced as we say we are, then we need to finish it. Mm -hmm. I, I have uh, numerous colleagues that as they get older, they become more skeptical. And I remind them, I will say to them, you know, it's not, to me, it's not a failure of the phenomenon. It's your failure. Mm -hmm. Just because you haven't been able to solve it, just because you haven't been able to come up with a, with a resolution, doesn't mean the phenomenon is any less. Mm -hmm. You're just getting more, uh, as far as uh, cynical, more skeptical because, you no longer have the passion. Dr. Heineck used to always tell us, never use that little boy wonderment. Mm -hmm. And I want to assure your audience that that little boy wonderment is in me as strong as ever. And I, for one, intend to finish this. And uh, I thank uh, everyone for the opportunity tonight. I certainly thank uh, Grant, and I certainly thank Nicole for being here through the extent of all this, for, for asking a, a, a great number of wonderful questions that I'm not asked as far as otherwise. And I certainly look forward to, to doing this again uh, in the future uh, as soon as possible. We'll keep pushing the envelope for sure, keep having these types of discussions and it will move the needle forward and it will keep it at the forefront. And I'd like to thank you as well for joining us here tonight and I'll thank you on behalf of Grant as well. <laughs>
He's still trying to find that button he was looking well, for. Well, I did see I did see it flash that uh, the connection got a little low there for a second. So maybe he got booted out, but <laughs> it's all right. We handled it from here. But I'll talk to you soon about having you back. And maybe you'd like to join in on one of our panel discussions where we have, you know, 10 people at once. They're always great. So Caught me Thank in. you, Don, and you Thank have you, a great weekend, and we'll talk great soon. Weekend. Talk soon. Good <laughs> Thank night. <you. laughs> Bye, everybody. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.